3: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
2: Are you the the first? The first one.
4: Visitor?
2: I've
5: always been visited. Nothing you have seen or heard about David Bowie will prepare you for the impact of his first dramatic performance in The Man Who Fell to Earth. This is another dimension of David Bowie, one of the few true originals of our time.
6: You're really a freak. I don't mean that unkindly. I like freaks. Is this a weapon? A weapon?
5: It's too small for interplanetary travel
4: assume that it's a weapon if I stay here I shall die what do you mean take me with you I'll see you don't die I can't stay you're an alien I think you know you know too much about me
5: where are you taking me he's just like everybody else he's 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 a fake Please don't do it. You don't understand. You might be able to save him.
4: Mary Lou. Save him? Help me. From what? No! No!
2: Tell me I love you.
5: The man who fell to earth is a powerful love story, a cosmic mystery. A spectacular fantasy, a shocking, mind-stretching experience, in sight, in space,
4: and sex.
7: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me this week is Mr. Sizik
8: Everything begins and ends in eternity.
7: Also back in the booth is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. We kick off Sci-Fi December with a look at Nicholas Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth. Based on the book by Walter Tevis, the film stars David Bowie as Thomas Jerome Newton, a strange man who appears in the office of a patent attorney with some big ideas that help him start on the road to untold wealth. Along the way, he meets some colorful characters such as Candy Clark as Mary Lou, a hotel worker, and Rip Torn as a college professor. We will be spoiling this film all to heck, so if you have have seen it, please check it out and come back. We will still be here. So Skiz, when was the first time you saw The Man Who Fell to Earth, and what did you think?
8: I think uh, I've only seen the film three times, and I think that the first time was in the early 90s when I was working in a video store. I mean, I'm a huge Bowie fan, so I was very much aware of it. I saw pictures from the film in magazines for years, but it wasn't until I actually found a VHS copy that I could sit down and watch it. I wasn't sure what I thought about it. I, of course, I thought Bowie was really cool. And uh, and I like Nicholas Rogue's filmmaking. But, you know, I, I kind of I was scratching my head a little bit after, after watching this one. Uh, I've now seen it a third time. I just watched it yesterday in pre- preparation for this recording. And I like it a lot more now than I did. <laughs> um, still scratching my head a little bit at parts of it.
7: How about you, Sam?
9: When Netflix first became a thing... I was so excited about it that I added all these movies and would just do sort of Netflix roulette and like not really see what was coming the next week. It was something that had always been on my list of things to see because of Bowie, but I didn't know anything about it. And I think that was the best way for me at least to go into it. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. I think because. It's sort of my idea of what I want science fiction to be, rather than this sort of like Star Wars generic space opera type thing, Like,
7: if that makes sense. You mean all them Yodas and shit? No baby Yodas in this movie. I think I also saw this one on VHS the first time, and God, I don't even remember how old I was, but... I will admit that I really didn't understand this movie very well at all the first probably two or three times that I saw it, maybe even more than that. But it's one of those movies that I keep going back to because I feel like I want to crack the code, <laughs> like there's more to this. I think reading Walter Tevis's novel definitely helped. There are more things that I can kind of understand now filmmaking and the way that the story is told puts me off sometimes, but not in a bad way. I mean, we've talked about Nick Rogue on this show before, and I like this kind of fractured time that he does and some of the more, I don't know, just interesting edits that he chooses to do. I'm still trying to figure out a lot of this movie. So this isn't going to be like, Hey, we're going to tell you everything that there is in the man who fell to earth, because I don't know if I necessarily understand everything,
9: but that's what makes it great.
8: There's an awful lot of detail in the film that doesn't seem all that necessary that I figured is probably, uh, there's probably more explanation for it in the book. And, uh, but then at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that isn't explained in the film that if they had removed the unnecessary stuff, they would have had more time to explain the stuff that isn't explained.
7: What are some of the things that that feel that way for you? Well,
8: I, I kind of feel like the whole backstory of Bryce, you know, the whole, uh, you know, sleeping with all the, the students at the college. I don't really know how that is necessary to his character once he finally becomes part of the story. But it seemed like there was a lot of time. And – I kind of get the feeling, oh, well, I was a chance to throw in a lot of gratuitous nudity. It kind of seemed like, yeah, all right, we get it. This guy's, you know, sleeping with these students. You know, there's things that, you know, when I'm done watching the film, I'm thinking, okay, what was that all about? And why didn't they explain that? But then I think about things like, well, we sat there and watched all those sex scenes. They could have cut those out and made room for explanations of other
7: things. How many other movies do you get where a girl talks into Rip Torn's penis? Or there
9: have to be at least one or two other ones. I would
7: hope so. Maybe Maidstone. Yeah.
9: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's why I love it so much, because I tend to like (laughs) really long art house movies with minimal scenes of exposition. And I know that that's not for everyone. But I think in a lot of ways, that's what this is. It just he kind of let the camera go. And you do get the sense that there's a fair amount of improv, which I love, but I definitely think it makes this an acquired taste. Like, I don't think I would ever meet, you know, a casual sci-fi fan and say, oh, man, if you love science fiction, (laughs) you really need to watch The Man Who Fell
7: to Earth. (laughs) But you're right, though. This is minimal science fiction. Yes, David Bowie is playing an alien, but... I think you could eliminate that and have this be a, just a story of isolation and someone who's not of this time. I mean, this was made in the mid-70s. This is around the time where a lot of the stories about Howard Hughes and how he was locked away in Las Vegas and had jars of his own urine and all those kind of things. And Thomas Jerome Newton, to me, feels like he and Howard Hughes could have been buds in that way. Like He doesn't go so far as collecting his own urine, but I think he would be fine being isolated from other people just because he is literally not of this earth, but figuratively as well.
9: That's what a lot of the other scenes kind of underline is that everyone is extremely isolated. And I mean, maybe that's just me at this point, having seen a lot of rogues films where that's kind of the predominant theme. And so I feel like those rip torn scenes provide kind of an important contrast or even maybe a comparison to show you that yes he's from another planet or at least you know there's a reading of this film where he's not actually an alien he's just really paranoid and is imagining those sequences but in either case it's like everyone is so isolated it's so depressing (laughs)
7: The stuff with Rip Torn, when we're introduced to him as being this Lothario college professor who's sleeping with his students, and we get him with... I'm thinking three girls, but there are two girls during this one sequence where we're cutting back and forth between these two sequences. And it really feels to me like they just said, okay, we're going to film the same sequence two times with two different actresses, and then we're going to cut the two things together because the lines are almost exactly the same. But to your point, Sam, it feels then like this is all scripted. And this is just so rote with this guy that almost every encounter he has with one of the, his students is going to end up sounding and acting almost exactly the same.
9: Some of Rogue's editing style makes it, as both of you explained, the first time you watch this, you're just like, what the hell? Sometimes in a good way, but sometimes in a way where it's like too disorienting to make sense of it.
7: Well, there will be moments where the camera... We'll, we'll just be like, I don't know, riding around in the back of a limousine and then we'll see fireworks. And it's like, okay, I'm not sure where these fireworks are coming from. I'm not exactly sure how they fit into the story, but there they are. And so then it's up to us, I guess, to try to figure out what's going on with this. And sometimes I just want to say, it it's just there because it's there.
9: Sometimes I think things in this movie are just there because they're pretty.
7: But I do want to talk about the star of the film, because a lot of times David Bowie will overshadow this film as being a film. And I think that this film works so much better because Bowie is in it. And because Bowie has the weight that his persona, his star persona had, especially at this moment, you know, David Bowie is, he's immortal. I mean, he's always had that, that presence to him, at least as far as I'm concerned. And then having him as this alien, I think, works so well because he is super fucking skinny. He's got the the two-tone hair going on. He's got the two different colored eyes, the one eye that's always more um, dilated than, than the other. And he gives off that presence, you know, not just because he's got the English accent and he is pretending to be an Englishman here in the United States, but very much like everybody who was making this movie was coming over from England, but he also has that, that otherworldliness of his own body.
9: I can't imagine this with anyone else. It's a stupid, redundant thing to say, Oh, it wouldn't be the same thing if a different actor was cast in the lead. But I just, I feel like this is one of those performances where with certain, like to provide a comparison, I guess with certain of those like great, Hollywood films are great British films where the central performance is just a really powerful stage actor. Sometimes I feel like you could swap some of those people out and you would get a different movie, but an equally effective movie. And I think to your point, if it was anyone other than Bowie, I think the movie would just really fall flat because without his persona and his sort of charisma, you just wouldn't care about the character.
8: Bowie's said in a lot of interviews that, that he was pretty much playing himself. You know, and I saw the list of people that were considered for the role, like Mick Jagger and stuff, and they probably would have played themselves as well. So anybody else in that role would have made that character completely different. It, it definitely would not have been anything like the movie we ended up with. And I can't think of another person that could have been cast. In there. I, I think a lot of the reason the film is a cult film has a lot to do with because it's Bowie. You know, it may have still become a cult film with somebody else, but uh, it's really hard to imagine what this film could have been like with somebody else.
7: Yeah, I love that whole thing of Rogue using rock stars in his films with um, Jagger in performance or Garfunkel in Bad Timing and then uh, Bowie in this one. It felt like it was the perfect people to be in these roles. And yeah, I, I imagine that Jagger would have brought something to this, but Jagger... Yeah, he's kind of funny looking, but he doesn't have that alienness. And then that Bowie character on his uh, stage persona for a long time was an alien, and so it just it just felt like such a perfect match.
8: Bowie also seems like the intellectual rock star, and even the stories about the making of this thing when he showed up with three hundred books, and they they laughed about how he didn't read enough. Who else would have shown up on set with 300 books? <laughs> you know, I don't think, for some reason, I don't think Mick Jagger would have. I think Mick Jagger would have shown up with, you know, a cabinet full of liquor and... and
9: 300 teenage girls.
7: Drugs definitely play a good role as far as this otherworldliness, too. I mean, I think he was pretty... Uh, I don't think he was necessarily doing drugs at the time while this movie was being shot, or maybe I'm just naive. I think he admitted that. Oh,
9: no, he's he said he said he was... He said he was doing like a pretty big bag of coke pretty much every day on set and was very paranoid. And the way he got through it was he didn't really read the full script. He just would like look at what he was supposed to do that day and would just get through the day. And so I think that's part of why he seems so alien, I guess. And like he was saying, in this interview that I was just reading, he was talking about how he was feeling like a person living in two different worlds at the time because of how he just wasn't handling his fame very well, or it was starting to exhaust him. And I think, you know, probably the combination of a diet of milk and cocaine will make you extremely dissociative and paranoid and Having seen a lot of people on Coke, it's like, I can't imagine how much Coke you would have to do to act like that.
7: Well, that's why I was wondering if it was heroin, because it just seems more like a, he's kind of out of it rather than being hyped up, which is what I always associate with cocaine.
9: Well, I think if you do a lot of cocaine over a sustained period of time, you're alert, but you're not hyped up, like ready to party. You enter a sort of, my understanding is that it's it's kind of like when you have bipolar and you're in sort of an upswing, you're in this a manic state or with different kinds of bipolar, there's a state called hypomania where you're just really alert and focused on things, and it can make you seem a little standoffish. And so I, I feel like it's just because he did so much. And you also have to think that, like, if he wasn't eating regular meals, that probably contributed to however he was behaving. It's, it's amazing he lived through that.
8: I mean, in the film, it seems like there's an awful lot of alcohol as well. And I, you know, I I would expect that on a real film Set they would uh you know they might have the real bottles, but fake liquid in them, but you never know there could have been alcohol added to that mix,
7: yeah, and that's really at the heart of both the book and the movie, I think is the this whole thing of alcoholism, and the way that we see Thomas Jerome Newton move from water and how precious water is to him to going into wine, and then gin, and then harder spirits as he goes along. And that is so much a, a part of uh, the book, is almost every character in every chapter is drinking or being offered drinks. I mean, the first time that he meets um, with the Buck Henry character, he's being offered a drink, um, and he chooses to do water. And that really makes sense, because water is like the most precious commodity on the planet that he's from. If he's even from another planet, because I think that's one of the things, too, is that while doing the research is hearing Bowie say that, you know, he's assumed to be an alien from outer space, but it's not necessarily true. And the more that I think about it, the more I wonder if those instances of him being in outer space or any of those things, if that's all, like, delusions. I know that that doesn't necessarily add up with the Mary Lou stuff, uh, though... Once she tries to, oh my God, that whole scene, <laughs> it just, okay, uh she sees that he has this alien form and then she pretty much immediately after she wets herself, she kind of swallows her pride or something and then tries to have sex with him. And I'm like, really? You're going to do that right now? This just seems a little soon
9: don't kink shame
7: i'm not trying to yuck your yum or anything (laughs) but and, and then even that whole scene is just so trippy with like the the milk and the bodies and uh the the slow motion just all of those things going on so i'm just like well is this even real i'm very curious is the film trying to tell us Maybe we shouldn't believe everything that we necessarily see. Is it that that moment of the fireworks that I was bringing up earlier where I'm just kind of throwing it away? Should I think of these things as being more of what's inside of Newton's head than what's actually happening in the real world?
8: There's no question that he's an alien because he I I guess the the proof for me is that he has this technology, the, the patents and everything that it sounds like no human could have come up with all of these.
7: No human being would stack books like this.
8: Like, he would have to be the smartest person on the planet.
2: I am the smartest man alive!
8: But it would have been interesting to really leave it open. Like, is he or isn't he? Like, uh, I mean, I guess that's sort of what we're discussing right now. But but I I feel like there's almost too much stuff saying that he is and not leaving it open to to a question.
4: You're familiar with the phrase... Man's reach exceeds his grasp. Is the lie. Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. Society only tolerates one change at a time. First time I tried to change the world, I was hailed as a visionary. Second time, I was asked politely to retire.
9: (laughs) Those sequences that we're talking about with her could kind of be explained away by DTs. Like, she could be hallucinating from alcohol abuse. But I I have to agree that overall, the way it ends, where he sees everyone age and he remains the same, that's not super open-ended. But I also think that this is the kind of film where it doesn't care. Like, I don't think Rogue cares whether you think he's an alien or a paranoid genius with alcoholism. like I don't think the film is more or less effective if one explanation or the other makes more sense. Like It's equally impactful, I think, and equally tragic.
7: Yeah, because either way, he ends up being alone again at the end. And depending on whether you read the book or watch the movie, he's either blinded by x-rays or the x-rays cause the contacts that he's wearing to fuse onto his eyes, so he'll never be able to be the person that he once was. He'll never be able to be that alien again, or at least the alien that he might think that he With Lucky
1: Land you can get lucky just about anywhere.
7: And the only reason why I'm harping on this whole thing of like him possibly not being an alien is because of some of those things. Like there's a great shot of Mary Lou peeling off her Uh, fake uh, nails. And I'm just like, well, that's kind of similar to what he has to do when he's peeling off uh, his nails because his hands have no nails on them when he's in his alien form or peeling off the the contacts, those kind of things. And then also when it comes to eyes, I mean, we have so many themes of eyes in this movie and looking and all that, but especially the Buck Henry character with those crazy Coke bottle glasses that he's wearing. And the other thing that I love is when Candy Clark, as Mary Lou, throws her wig at him and says, you're an alien.
1: You're an alien.
10: You know what would happen if they found out your visa had expired? You don't know. How could you? You're simple. You don't understand how we live here
7: we can read alien in those different ways as a, as a nice touch as well. But there are other hints of him definitely not being who he says he is. And one of them that I didn't even realize until doing the research on this was when Mary Lou takes him to church and they say, we're going to sing this, this hymn which uh for an English friend of ours. And when they start singing Jerusalem, which I always associate with, Monty Python because they were doing parodies of this song and he doesn't know the words and it's just like that's supposed to be a clue for us to know that he is not who he says he is.
8: Right. Yeah, I felt like there were other clues where he was Oh, there was the the Latin phrase that he didn't know.
4: Ask me. What? The question you've been wanting to ask ever since we met. Are you
5: Lithuanian?
4: I come from England.
5: Oh, it's not so terrible. Per adua ad astra. Hmm? I beg your pardon? That's Latin. Latin? You must know that in England. Royal Air Force, their motto. Yes. Per adua ad astra, through difficulties to the stars.
8: So, yeah, I, I didn't believe he was British. I, I believed he was from outer space, pretending to be British.
7: That scene, I love the set. That glowing orb that they have, and then those sound-deadening cones that are around. It's just one of the best sci-fi sets in what is a, ostensibly a non-sci-fi science fiction movie.
8: That's the uh, the cover of Station to Station, the Bowie album.
9: Yes. My impression, or what I always thought to be true, was that he was supposed to do the score for this, but there was some sort of timing issue or contract issue, so he wound up not doing it. But I just listened to this interview with him where he said that he thought he was supposed to do the music, but no one told him that, (laughs) and so he just started composing music and a couple months into it, found out, like, no, no one ever said that. And so, obviously, he didn't do the score, but he used the music he composed during shooting, some of it for station to station and some of it for low. And I had no idea about that until recently.
8: There seems to be a lot of, a lot of conflicting stories about the music because it In interviews at the time, he was saying that he was doing the music for it. And you would think that somebody with the film would have seen those interviews and said, hey, he's got the wrong idea. But then there's also a report where he was paid like $250,000 to make music for the film. (laughs) I forget where I read that, but I just saw that while researching for today. And I was like, so he was paid to make music that he wasn't asked to make. (laughs) Like something doesn't really make sense there. And then in the end, they give it to the Mamas and the Papas guy to do
9: it the thing i listened to it's him and nicholas rogue and nicholas rogue is like yeah no you weren't supposed to do it Mm. (laughs) (laughs) like in a friendly way and they both said that like the way that it turned out was the best possible way and so it wasn't like an angry like remember when you told me to (laughs) to write this album you liar i feel like maybe some of it is him giving interviews in a drug-fueled state and maybe, you know, 30 years after the fact, people not remembering things clearly. But either way, I I actually really love the score to the film. And so I'm glad that we have both music in whatever form.
7: Yeah, I was very surprised that the John Phillips music was as good as it is. And it really does seem to fit the piece. And I, I, moreover... I appreciate the other music, the real songs that they bring in to this, especially uh, Roy Orbison's Blue Bayou. I love that sequence when he is in front of all of those TVs and Mary Lou's yelling at him and he's got Blue Bayou on. That is probably that and the scene where she wets herself are probably the most memorable things from that first time of me watching this movie.
8: The Roy Orbison scene really stood out to me again because this was early 90s and i started working at a video store and suddenly had access to all these movies like blue velvet which also has a great roy orbison song used in it and i remember borrowing all these tapes and just dubbing all these scenes on the one tape that just featured cool music in them so i you know i, I had blue velvet i had man who fell to earth and uh some alex cox movies but uh Yeah, it's it's just sort of seemed like you can't go wrong putting a a Roy Orbison song into a scene.
7: And the one thing that we haven't really touched on, too, is that you can look at this whole movie as like some sort of a Christian allegory with this man who falls from the sky, very Jesus-y. And then, of course, he's going to be betrayed. And you could compare. It's interesting that. The Mary Lou character was Betty Joe in the book, and then they made her Mary Lou. So I'm like, okay, is that supposed to bring us even closer to Mary Magdalene? Is that how we're supposed to look at this character? And then you've got Bryce, who mostly he's just doubting Thomas. He just really wants to know if Thomas Jerome Newton is who he says he is or if he's something else. And that's what drives him throughout the entire Story is his not knowing and his suspicion that Newton is not what he says he is or is something else. And it's interesting, there's none of this banging college co-eds <laughs> in the book. It's basically him coming home finding these caps that some kids left in the, in the hallway him lighting them on fire expecting them to explode and when they do he doesn't smell gunpowder and then he eventually like starts to tie that in with a camera and with the film that Newton is producing and then that drives him such that he actually quits working at the college where he's at and then begins working for Newton and works his way all the way up to this outer space project that he's on. And so, yeah, there's none of that dirty old man kind of stuff.
9: But it's Rip Torn.
7: (laughs) It is Rip Torn. And it's a prime Rip Torn. I am mostly used to Rip Torn being old Rip Torn. So seeing him in his prime is really quite astounding. And I love watching him. We're not hosting an intergalactic kegger down here. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. You almost have to cast
9: somebody with that much kind of explosive presence because otherwise how I mean as the film's antagonist, if he can't compete with David Bowie in some way, like why would you even care about the things that he's doing? He needs presence and Rip Torn's <laughs> certainly had a lot of presence.
7: I think it's also not coincidental that we've got mentions of Christmas in here, that there there just seem to be a lot of things where we're supposed to play into this whole idea of a Christian allegory. But you can take it or leave it. You know, it's just the same thing as what I was saying as far as is he an alien? Is he not an alien? Is it a delusion? Is it drug-fueled? Whatever. Yeah. If you want to read this as a Christian allegory, go right ahead and knock yourself out.
9: I don't think that ever occurred to me. But I also am a person who almost never reads things that way. I read the Narnia books as a kid. And then when I was in college, I took like a lot of medieval studies classes. And there somebody said something like, oh, you know, of course, C.S. Lewis writing all these Christian allegories. I was like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) Like, I just had no idea. And so I I guess I'm, I am maybe the wrong person to have an opinion about that.
7: Yeah. I'm sure somebody much more well-versed in Bible studies could probably draw more parallels and be like, Oh, well the Farnsworth character is, I don't know, Peter or Paul. I don't know. And the Arthur character is definitely Judas because X, Y, and Z, but that's not me. I'm not able to go down that path. Unfortunately.
8: I didn't even realize that Strange Brew was a, a Shakespeare play at first.
7: It took me years to figure that one out as well, so don't worry about it.
9: See, that one I got because I really love Shakespeare. So.
8: I hadn't read the play before I saw the movie, so it probably would have Well, helped. you were oh. what?
7: Well, I was yeah, well, 10 when we'll I, do I do saw it. And I will be honest, I read the first Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, the uh, C.S. Lewis book. And I never got Christian allegory out of it. Maybe later on it gets much more, but
9: that makes me feel better.
7: Okay, yeah, don't don't sweat it. So I never made it resistance
9: to Christian
4: allegory. No,
7: (laughs) I was just really turned on by that Winter Witch while I was watching the cartoon.
4: My poor child, how cold you look! Come sit with me here on the sledge, and I will put my robe around you, and we will talk. Perhaps something hot to drink? Mm-hmm. would you like that? And would you like something to eat? Some Turkish delight?
9: I thought she was so scary.
7: She was super hot to me, I don't know. <laughs> don't yuck my yum. The Bernie Casey character is also not part of the mix when it comes to the book. He is wholly made up for the movie. And I'm still, like, once we get into that area, it's just like, okay, well, this kind of makes sense that we've got this, I'm guessing, working for the government kind of angle going on here. But I really, frankly, I didn't, didn't need that. I was okay with when the net closes on Newton that the government was aware of this stuff all along, especially because there's that guy at the very beginning who sees Newton coming down and coming down that hill that he, he traverses. And he shows up a couple times and he just seems like, to me, he seems like the government because he's dressed in a suit and he's there watching. And it feels like, OK, they're always going to know whatever moves we make. So this guy represents the government. I didn't necessarily need uh, a different personification.
8: Right, so it, it's not me. They actually don't explain <laughs> who that guy was, right?
9: No, <laughs> no. Those scenes are the least fulfilling to me. Some of that I kind of wish had been trimmed a little, I guess. I'm fine with the rip-torn sex scene staying in.
7: Well, yeah, let's not be crazy. I know, come on. And maybe you guys can tell me a little bit what you take away from the gunplay that... Newton and Mary Lou have, that's just always struck me as weird, too. I can only
8: assume that it's insanity from being cooped up and tested so much, but why he even has the gun. Let's give this crazy guy we're testing a gun. I would assume, you know, when he pulled it out, that there wouldn't be any bullets in it, because, again, why would he have it if it were a loaded weapon? But he also was able to just kind of walk out of there without anyone stopping him, so i'm not completely sure like what that place was and how he was being held you know again that's one of those things that i I feel isn't explained perfectly in the film or isn't explained at all i don't think but i don't know maybe you guys got something else from it
9: that whole sequence where like with the gunplay but also how he just kind of magically walks out of there i think That is sort of a strong, some strong evidence for the fact that he is just having a delusion. But I also think that it's just very Nicholas Rogue. I mean, he has in almost all of his movies, these very intense, transgressive kind of raw sex scenes And so it seems to me and I definitely didn't think this the first time I watched the film. But like now that I've seen it a few times and I've seen some of his other films, it seems kind of inevitable that he would have some sort of crazy hallucinatory sex scene. And so I guess my takeaway is like, yes, of course, this is in here. I don't really know exactly why there are guns involved, but I think it maybe is just to show the state of their mental deterioration.
8: Yeah, I think delusion is probably the best (laughs) best explanation for all of it.
7: Yeah, the only thing I really got out of it was possibly a callback to those caps that I was talking about, how the uh, World Enterprises Corporation, they make all of these things, but they seem to mostly make cameras, photographic equipment, film... But then of all the things that they make, they make caps for cap guns, which just seemed like the most incongruous thing. I mean, when he switches everything to space flight, then it's like, okay, I guess this makes sense just because he's got all the money. It doesn't necessarily make sense in a business sense. And then, of course, in 2019, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of like an Elon Musk character because I'm just like, <laughs> oh, so you're going to do SpaceX as well. All right. Yeah, that makes sense.
9: One of the things that we haven't really talked as much about is this whole, the the way that this kind of anti-capitalist, anti-government big thread is wound in there. And so I think some of it has to do with that.
7: And it doesn't even seem like it's just talking about the government, but it seems like it's also talking about America overall. I mean, yeah. going back to the idea of him having this gun, one of the first things, things that he encounters when he goes in and tries to sell his ring to this woman in a shop. It's not a pawn shop. When she opens up a drawer, there's a gun laying there. And it's like, that's one of the first of many guns that we get through this whole thing. And us being Americans, we know that we love our guns and don't try to take them from us.
8: It also kind of breaks that rule, though, that that you know when you see a gun in one act, it's going to play an important role in another act. I forget what that rules called, but
2: check off, I thought yeah. I, oh okay. Yes, check
5: off. I know this saying. It was invented in Russia.
8: But so this movie, it, you know, it doesn't really doesn't really work. I think the only time we see a gun fu- being fired is that that crazy sex scene.
9: That's true of so many things in this movie where something is introduced and then it's just never resolved or explained.
7: He gets 20 bucks for his ring. And the next time we see him, he's counting this huge wad of a hundred dollar bills. I'm like, wait a second, what the hell just happened between here? Did he have that many rings to sell? Yeah, he
8: pulled out that that collection of rings. And so, I mean, I'm guessing he just came with a whole bunch of rings that he went around and sold, and that's how he got all this cash. But yeah, that did seem kind of kind of quick. And I guess that's one of the first hints that like time in this film isn't the pacing and the actual progress of time are not what you're expecting out of a movie in this film.
9: Now that I've seen it a few times, it's one of my favorite things about the film. But if you're not used to this kind of more art house, experimental editing style, and you've never seen any rogue films, I can see how it would be a little bit of a challenge for somebody the first time around, especially because it's over two hours long.
7: Right. When they cut back to Buck Henry at one point, and he's now an old man, And Mary Lou is still the same age that she is. And Rip Torn seems to be the same age he is. I'm just like, well, wait a second. When did he meet Mary Lou? And when did he meet? Professor Bryce versus when he met Farnsworth because now Farnsworth is old and I'm just like immediately trying to do this whole timeline in my head. And then also wondering if I'm going back and forth in time when I'm watching these things. And that's also a possibility. So it's, yeah, it's a really nice touch to this is the way that we're moving through time that Thomas Jerome Newton is moving through time untouched. Whereas all of the human characters are aging.
9: Hey, time is a flat circle.
7: I really do appreciate the way that they put all that stuff together in that we don't know exactly how long he has been on Earth. And that we also have that interesting, for lack of a better term, time travel sequence where he is riding in the back of the limo again, and he looks out and can see the... Early American settlers looking back at him riding in the limo, and they see him, and he sees them. And we have that crazy cornball Western-type music going on, and then the car just disappears.
8: I thought that was interesting, because not only do they see him, but they also see
7: telephone poles. In 2019, they should digitally remove those telephone poles.
9: Don't say that out loud, (laughs) because then we'll wind up with some awful... Blade Runner type situation where s- some producer will be like, yes, let's edit a more futuristic version of The Man Who Fell to Earth using lots of CGI.
7: We can make David Bowie look better as this alien and then he just looks like an abomination. He looks like George Jar, Jar Binks. Can you imagine what they would do to that, like, sweat lodge on rails that they have in this?
9: <laughs> well, and uh, the sex scenes? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't want to picture this. Scrub this from my brain. <laughs>
7: I like how Nicholas
8: Rogue thought that that, whatever that thing was, looked like a dog kennel. I thought it looked like a cake. It was like a, a big cake with windows.
7: Yeah. And they keep going back to that. I forgot how many times they go back to his family on whatever, uh, a- a- Anthenia, or I can't remember what they call it in the book, but, or Mars for lack of a better term.
9: I went down the rabbit hole of re and I know it's wrong and I know I shouldn't have done it, but I went down the rabbit hole of reading more contemporary reviews of this film. Uh And one of them, this reviewer basically was saying the tone was very much like, even though this is a seventies film, it's still worth your time, which 1976 is my favorite year for cinema period ever. And so I immediately was enraged by the first paragraph, but at the end as he's closing and he he liked the film overall, but as he's closing, he was like the only parts that I really had a lot of trouble with were the parts where they show David Bowie's alien family, you know, back on his home planet or back on what must be his home planet. He was like it really just can't hold up to today's CGI and I was like no, a part of me just died.
7: I read one where the guy was bitching about the um, film that developed itself in the can. And he was just like, well, Polaroids were invented in 1946, so this isn't really that spectacular technology.
9: Oh, I read that too. and was like, really?
7: That guy was so fucking snotty. I could not stand that review.
9: I know better than to read reviews of 60s or 70s films of art house films and especially of exploitation films, but sometimes it's like I just can't help myself. I'm like possessed by some spirit.
7: I wanted to just mention before I forget about it the the alienness of Newton, again, the way that he almost like astral projects to the Bryce character.
0: Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver? I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com.
7: No purchase necessary. VGW group prohibited by loss. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When Bryce is out fishing and he shows up and he's just like, hey, there's nothing to worry about and that disappears and then when he meets him the next day it's supposed to be for the first time i kind of appreciate that one as well that bryce has this vision and i guess maybe that maybe that takes me back to the whole christian allegory thing maybe that's another thing that one of the disciples had a vision of you know jesus before he met him so why do you persecute
5: me Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Tomorrow, Dr. Bryce. Huh?
7: Who are you? Don't be suspicious. But that was a, a nice touch that... It, it's also strange that Bryce lives on one side of the lake and Newton lives on the other side of the lake, so they're like constantly could be looking at each other and never actually talking.
8: Yeah, I, I kind of wondered if that was... uh imagined or if that was real i mean that that's getting into some david lynch territory there
9: this film must have been an influence on him i mean i know that rogue had to have been in general just like based on the editing style but it does seem very like i think if you watched man who fell to earth and then you watch the most recent season of twin peaks you would see a
7: lot of weird similarities
8: did i see that candy clark was in twin peaks
7: Oh, yes.
8: And again, Roy Orbison.
7: Well, yeah, and then Philip Jeffries, who turns into a giant teapot. He also does not talk about Judy in this movie, either.
9: It's a crime against cinema.
7: In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. I feel like I'm picking on this movie a lot, but I have to say that I still find it infinitely fascinating, and that I really enjoy pulling this movie apart and putting it back together, because there are so many different ways that you can read it. And it is sensual. And I love the audio mix. I love the way that this looks. I really like a lot of the performances. I mean, I was watching the scene earlier with the uh, when he is about to take off and uh, Jim Lovell is there. And you've got the different uh, broadcasts going on in either ear, which is nice. And watching this movie with headphones on is a real treat.
9: Yeah, this is something I've always really wanted to see in a theater. And hopefully that will happen one day. But that is probably true of all of his films, that they're just not meant to be watched on televisions. I mean, like Walkabout, Performance, like they're supposed to be in your face and in your ears, I guess, as it it were.
7: Yeah, I've seen Walkabout on the big screen, and that was amazing. I would love to see um, Don't Look Now on the big screen.
9: Because you really want to see... giant version of donald sutherland's ass exactly (laughs) i mean me too
7: (laughs) (laughs) more than when i got to see it in uh a national lampoon's animal house because frankly i haven't seen don't look now yet and i would love to see it but just been kind of waiting for it on the big screen
9: yeah you should you should wait have you seen performance
7: i have but only on an old vhs tape
9: yeah, performance is one of those things that I think because of the weird Warner Brothers rights issues, sort of like with the devils, I don't think it has, like, it's ever going to, or not anytime soon, going to get some kind of, like, touring theater release or 35 release, but I, I would really love if it did.
7: Well, there's so many different avenues that you can take when you talk about this movie. And I know that we're kind of all over the map, but it feels appropriate for this film to not necessarily talk about it in a linear way.
9: Well, and that's sort of what I was thinking earlier today is that I feel like with the projection booths, you tend to be really good at sort of working through a film in a particular like logical order. And this is one of those movies where you really can't do that. but. I think that would also be true if you talked about walkabout or performance and to a different extent, don't look now. It just, I think that's just his style as a filmmaker. What you were just saying about how it's rewarding because there are so many different ways to talk about it or think about it. It makes it difficult to do a critical analysis because like there's no point A to Z discussion. It's just sort of all over the place as a movie.
7: I don't find it any coincidence that the editor of this movie also worked on Don't Look Now, which was another rogue, but also worked on images. Because I feel like their rogues work and Altman's work, at least in images, feel like they were kind of sharing some of the same air.
9: Oh, definitely. And three women as well.
7: Oh, wow, yeah.
9: Yeah, I wonder if if he worked on that too. Because they there are a lot of similarities like my brain always wants to group things by theme and that would be a really intense five or six movie marathon you probably would would need a drink at, at the end of that <laughs> <laughs> possibly during it
7: graham clifford also just uh, since we we're talking about this also directed an episode of twin peaks mm. so there you go
9: Ah, bringing it all together. Mm
7: -hmm. Episode 2.5, so sometime in that weird second season. So I'm not sure if that was before they talked about who actually killed Laura, or if that was um, maybe more of uh, James on his road trip.
9: Don't say that. (laughs) James was in town recently, and I couldn't bring myself to go.
7: James is so cool. He's always been cool.
9: He never has. (laughs) (laughs) david bowie on the other hand
7: always cool yeah always always
9: eternally
8: even when he's dancing in the streets
9: even when he's in just a gigolo which like i heard someone talk about films like like labyrinth and man who fell to earth and their their argument was like these are only good it was a stupid argument but it was These are only good films because they have somebody as charismatic as David Bowie. And I was like, clearly you haven't seen just a gigolo, which David Bowie could definitely not save. He's still cool, but you're also like, yikes.
7: (laughs) I was really hoping that you meant that he was in the David Lee Roth music video for just a gigolo.
9: He stars in it, actually. Oh, wow. It's him with the ship's captain hat on. It's not really David Lee Roth.
7: Holy cow, that guy's an (laughs) actor and a half. Wow.
9: (laughs) He learned how to do split kicks just for that video.
7: There are certain movies and certain musicals and certain works of art that I like to go back to time and again, even though they end in tragedy. And this is another one of those. This is like jesus christ superstar or Avida, i know that things are going to go bad at a certain point in this movie it always happens and i always hope it doesn't happen but it still happens nevertheless because as lonely as thomas jerome newton is at the beginning he's going to be worse than that at the end of it
9: it's so hard to watch
8: it's almost like the like vampire movies where everybody they know grows old and dies but they stay the same age and here he is at the end of the movie still young and good looking but you know completely smashed and everybody that he's known throughout the movie is you know they're they're elderly at this point
9: after he passed after David Bowie passed away i which i was very upset about and normally i don't like get that worked up about celebrity deaths but I unwisely that day did a double feature of The Man Who Fell to Earth and The Hunger. Mm. There was a lot of crying, let me
7: tell yeah. you. Yeah, The Hunger is almost a good follow up because he goes from not aging at all to all of a sudden over aging in that one.
9: But they have a lot of very similar themes about isolation and loneliness and sort of trying to trying to figure out what being human means and trying to make connections. And to me, even more than the ending, that's what's so tragic about the man who fell to earth is he's sort of trying through Mary Lou's character is sort of trying to figure out what it means to be human. And he just winds up with all these horrible vices. He, it seems like he doesn't get any of the positive experiences just The awful
7: ones. All right, we're going to take a break and play a series of interviews. First up, you'll hear the conclusion with our interview with Candy Clark. You can hear the first part of that over on our More American Graffiti episode. After that, you'll hear from author Sam Umland, and last but not least, you'll hear from author Susan Campo. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages.
0: I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to the Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I have covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon
6: at Forgotten TV. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards. In 2016, it's a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future... Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud.
0: Hi there, faithful projection booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the projection booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcatchers, both Android and iOS.
4: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode... that's p a t r e o n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's twelve dollars a year. At least fifty great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
7: Well, how did you get cast in The Man Who Fell to Earth?
10: Well, let's see. I was introduced to Nick Rode by Cy Livenoff, and he and I hit it off, like, instantly. One day, I was with him and at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and he had a meeting with some producer type, and he said, wait out here, and here's this script. I want you to read it. You can read this uh, while I'm in the meeting, and uh, so I thought, okay, so I was reading it with nothing in mind except just to read it. I read the script, and Nick is in the meeting for a hour or two and I'm reading the script and it was really great I loved it and when he comes out he said well what'd you think and I said oh it's fantastic you need to do this movie and I said it's great and he said do you want the part <laughs> I'm like yes <laughs> and then that was before anyone was cast that before there was any money or you know any production money any production office nothing and I was just hired, just then and there. And it was, so I got to watch the whole process of this thing getting off the ground and uh, the cast being hired. And, you know, it was wonderful behind the scenes stuff.
7: Have you ever had that experience before where you're the first one hired for a project?
10: No, I don't think so. That was just a lucky, lucky, lucky break. So I got to watch everything as it unfolded, you know, and it unfolded fairly quickly. And it was the first time an all-British crew, Nick Rowe, you know, was an established director in England. And so he had his people, you know, that he wanted to work with. And they brought the whole, uh, all of his people in from (laughs) England. So it was an all-British crew. That was
7: great. Had you ever worked with that much um, makeup before? Because I know that you go through a pretty amazing transformation in the film.
10: Yeah, they call it appliances, and they do them so much, you know, they're so much more realistic today. Like, you know, when Eddie Murphy plays one of his characters, you can't even tell, and everything seems to move so well, you know, the rubber and the latex. But I had never worked with that many appliances you know the neck the cheeks the hands and all the glue and it would just I (laughs) I spent a couple of weeks in that makeup and I tallied up my hours every day I'd write down my hours of just spending time in the chair and uh, the total was (laughs) 96 and a half hours of just being glued and and hovered over and made up and And once you got that makeup on, they tell you, you know, try not to use your mouth, you know, much because it would start cracking around the lips and the cheeks and all of that. And so I would tell everyone, you know, don't make me laugh. Don't make me laugh. And (laughs) I had to drink through a straw, you know, it was, it was a challenge. It was really fun. And I thought that, uh, you know, it came across, it really did, you know, the aging. And that film was, we had to keep track of time because David Bowie's character never aged. <laughs> and so every scene, you like, how many years have passed? You know, so you would kind of know. And um, yeah, it was very complicated, but it was so much fun. And David and I had a lot of dialogue. And by then I'd gone to some acting classes, so I knew a little better of how to, you know, make a character and all of that. But David Boy was wonderful to work with. He was a hard worker. He liked to rehearse. And we'd be working on one scene, you know, shooting one scene. And back then, you know, lighting and all that was, it was real film. So uh, it took a long time to light and set up. And they had to put down dolly tracks and stuff like that, which would be very time-consuming. Now with the Steadicam and and with the digital cameras, it's not as much downtime as it used to be. But uh, when we were doing a scene like the uh, ping-pong scene, you know, we would be doing that. But on our breaks, which were many, and they had to relight and relocate all the lighting, we'd be you know, sitting on the floor, running the next scene, the lines for the next scene. So we were always like one scene ahead, getting it perfectly memorized. So, uh, you know, it came out smooth and like real conversation. But I thought David, who was so beautiful at that, you know, his skin was translucent and his hair was, I mean, he was just a gorgeous person. And I was really lucky that I had never seen him in concert. So I wasn't, you know, I was, he was just another actor. But after the movie was over and shot, I got invited to one of his concerts and I became like a groupie. Oh, my God. I You know, it was a totally different scene. And I was so happy that I hadn't had been influenced by, you know, his being on stage because then it would have been a little more, I don't know, referential or something, you know what I mean? You know, a little more goo goo ga -ga. But I was glad I'd never been to his concerts until after.
7: Well, in that case, it's like the shoes a little bit on the other foot because by this time you're the experienced actor and this is one of his first roles.
10: Well, he had other roles. But he was really into the character. He loved the script and he was very respectful of the script. And I mean, we didn't real we didn't change any dialogue. It was as written by Paul Myersberg. And the the dialogue was so beautifully written and the responses and the back and forth that you did not, you, you did not want to change anything because it was perfect in my in mine, and I think david's David's a big reader too, and so am I, so we know we know good writing when we read it
7: when you're jumping back and forth in time so much at least in the the movie as I watch it, were you shooting that in order or are you also shooting that out of order?
10: I think uh the scenes were determined by the location, you know, so all the scenes that were done at that kind of japanese house were all done at once. And, you know, it's all determined <clears throat> by the locations.
7: Is it true that you're also the alien woman as well?
10: I am. <laughs> I I asked to play the life on the other planet. And also I played David Bowie in a scene.
7: I heard about that. How did that happen?
10: At the time, he wouldn't fly. He was very superstitious about flying. And uh, so there was a scene where he's coming out of his characters coming out of the World Enterprises uh, office building. And uh, since he wouldn't fly, I volunteered. I'll go to New York. (laughs) And um, so that's me when his costume and I have on a little red wig and I'm walking out of the office building and into a limo. And I, they had some little barricades set up, but there wasn't a lot of people watching us. But the few that were watching, they were saying, "There's David Bowie, there's David Bowie," and I'm like, "Yes, I fooled him. But you know, our jawlines weren't not uh, alike. So I, in that scene, I had my hand up to my jaw, <laughs> my chin, as I'm walking past, because I knew, you know, you know, he has a man jawline and I don't, so. So I just try to cover
7: up that makeup for being the alien. I mean, that was before they had perfected contact lenses and stuff. That must have really hurt.
3: No, well, I'm a, I've been wearing contact since the Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's
3: office.
0: you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day low actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw we prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus 60s hard lenses to
10: this day so it was no no big deal. Although we did kind of have a little bit of a crisis when you uh, couldn't see through them because they were painted with some sort of maybe oil-based paint uh, into those cat's eyes. So there was no pupil hole or anything. And then they put over that some sort of urethane or verethane to seal it. And uh, so you could not see through them. So you were really working blind. And you had to be guided by the director Okay, move this way, turn that way, go straight, go straight. Okay, slow down, you know. And uh, so, if you see us, <laughs> we're coming down a hill of sand. And the customer had put us in these plexiglass shoes with a high uh, sole uh, made out of clear plastic plexiglass. And we had those on to make us look like, I guess she wanted us to look like we were floating, you know, down the hill, which is a great effect. But they were like skis (laughs) and we couldn't wear them. So we had to wind up walking barefoot. But, yeah, uh, we tried those. David and I were like sliding and like, you know, it was like impossible. But we had these tanks on our backs with... Uh, pink water, and then the tanks, the hoses were springing leaks, and we were out in the white sands of Alamogordo. And, um, you know, the the costumes were this real thin, thin, uh, stretchy fabric that was pretty much (laughs) see-through, although you don't see much on film. But when you're standing there and the thing is getting wet, you know, <laughs> and but nobody cared, you know they'd seen us naked before, so it was like uh eh, more of the same. But yeah, it was um really uh yeah, I like playing the wife on the other planet and you know his help never arrived and you know we die out there, me and the kids and we had a little hologram that was one of the first holograms that uh is in a film, you know, you really couldn't see it, but you could kind of see it. And I'm holding up this plastic thing that's called a hologram. And back then that was real cutting edge, but, uh, it was, it was an amazing uh, adventure. And we were in New Mexico for a couple of months. Fabulous place.
7: How did you get into that headspace of that complete breakdown after you see him and as the alien?
10: Oh, (laughs) that day, where where I'm going, Tommy, Tommy, you know, I'm like waiting in bed and I'm painting my nails anyway. And we're knocking on the door and I was kind of goofing around and going, Tommy, can you hear me? You know, just being stupid between takes. That day he got sick. David got sick. So when they opened the door, all that was there was the camera and the cameraman, David Bowie was not there. I just had to pretend he was there and I had to pretend that I'm seeing my boyfriend as he really is for the first time. And I was in an improv class and uh, there was this was an idea that I stole from another actor that was in an improv class where the actor got scared. And for a split second, his feet were on the wall. He was suspended and then his feet came down. I thought that looks neat. So when I see the character uh, Newton for the first time as he really is, I thought I will see him and throw myself back. And behind me was a wall and a bookcase. And I would just be projected back, you know, like just by force of fear. And I just would throw myself back over and over again. And then. Uh, so I was really bruised up the backs of my arms and my legs, but it was effective. And then I was, the character is in the script, runs into the bathroom and throws up. That's how it was written. But I drank, there's a thing called Ipecac, which is a, a medicine to make you throw up if you've been poisoned or something. So I drank this Ipecac, and we're waiting around for it to take effect because I really wanted to throw up, be the first person to throw up on screen for real. And um, it didn't work. I drank the whole bottle, nothing. So, well, you know, I had no nothing from it. And anyway, so we regrouped. and So I had this image of Mary Lou, like when you touch a, a frog, a toad, how a toad will, you know, you pick him up and he just pees all over your hands. And so I had this image of Mary Lou. She gets touched by her boyfriend, who's like totally different, that causes her to be like a frog, you know, all over the place. So that was a first. I don't think anyone's ever done that, but that wasn't real. That was done with tubing and all that. I couldn't do that on command. I was all tubing and a little bulb, and you know, so it was just colored water. But Mary Lou is like recoiling. This thing comes out of the bathroom <laughs> and touches her face, and she's just like, Wah! you know.
7: That scene in particular just always floors me. Just how real you make that.
10: I just have to imagine it really hard. And what what would you do if? After years of being with someone, that they they take off all their stuff and there they are. Ah, yeah. See, you're going to, are you going to throw up or pee your pants? What are you going to do? Run for the hills or try to cooperate somehow? It's your wife. Ah, you know, it's. So anyway, Mary Lou goes into the bedroom, and there's Newton, and, you know, he just looks like a kind of a big old salamander. She tries her best, but it's too revolting. Stuff gets all over my hands. <laughs> I'm like, ah! And then the next time you see Mary Lou, she's in the kitchen, and it's all this warped vision like a fisheye lens. She's down on the floor in the kitchen going, crying and going, why, why, why?
7: Yeah, that might put a little strain on the relationship.
10: <laughs> Suddenly you kind of change your mind about your your husband or your wife or your boyfriend. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's a lot to handle. A lot to handle.
7: <laughs> so I read that David Bowie was on a, a skateboard for you to pull him, but I always was curious how you pulled off Picking him up and carrying him. I don't imagine that was you actually carrying him. I
10: thought that's what happened. And it might have happened in some of the scenes. But my brother said there was a lift on the camera. And he was on the lift. But I do remember a skateboard. When I pulled him out of the elevator, he's kind of just easy to slide. If you see pull him out of the elevator, elevator, and he just kind of glides, and he had he was balanced on a skateboard at that point, so you know, and then Mary Lou really heavy, let me pick him up so, you know uh, the camera was right there, and david i had the my task was to keep his his head and his legs in the frame, keep him bowed up so and he was his thing was he's passed out so you know, I really had to work with an actor that's supposed to be passed out and not helping much.
4: <laughs>
10: so, uh, it required a lot of arm strength and plus getting him down the hall and I had something between my legs and it was, you know, I had to get him into the bed and and I kept my shins kept hitting the bed frame and so you know but you can't you're getting hurt but you can't react to that you just kind of have to zen it out and just do do what you're supposed to do and look at the damage later but yeah it was it was fun
7: how was nick rogue to work with as a director
10: well back then directors were on set now they're on a in another room looking at a monitor which is not as much fun but back then, he was right, just right out of frame. And, you know, he was very specific and had a lot of instruction and great ideas. It was like a coach, just, you know, and he just got us through it. And, it, you know, it was his vision. And we just kind of portrayed his vision. You know, he was really, really good with, with uh, direction. Huge. Fantastic. And it really helps when your coach is right there, just out of frame, you know, it's just inches away and you can kind of see while you're doing the scene, you can still have peripheral vision so you can still see him, you know, his excitement or, you know, a body language, which is kind of helping you along too. you know, like, like a, like a, a uh, boxing coach, you know, you'll see if you see a boxing coach and as boxers in the ring, you'll see their their body language is like they're fighting too, you know. So the director is fighting to get you through the scene because it's film. And if you stop or halt or go forget your lines, then you have to start completely over. And film is expensive. Now it's all digital, so you can pick up a scene, you know, you foul up, you just start where you left off, basically. It's not the same.
7: I know you don't share too many scenes with him, but how was torn to work with?
10: Easy, easy. He was quite the, the handful. With
1: lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about
2: anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?
3: Sorry, sorry, we're here.
2: We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
3: <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When
10: we did scenes like one sing together where we're at a restaurant, it was easy as pie.
7: Wonderful. Buck Henry with those amazing glasses,
10: and I tried those on. I, you know, I said, "Let me see what these are like." You couldn't see; it was like you're wearing two magnifiers on your. You couldn't see to walk. You couldn't, and if you put your hand down like you're sitting on the sofa and you reach for the arm of the sofa, it was so distorted you would think that the arm was. Like lower or higher than than you thought, so you're just kind of feeling around because everything was totally distorted. And he managed to get through it, even though he could not see a thing. <laughs> it was just like wearing two like magnifying glasses on your eyes. Try walking around with that. But yeah, we overcame.
7: Did you end up? Was there a premiere for that? Did you go to that?
10: There was one in England. And I went for that one, yes. Well, I was supposed to go on a two-week tour to promote the film, and it was put out by this company called Cinema 5. A man named Don Rugoff owned that, and that was a real art house distributing company, and they took pride in putting out director's cuts, you know, uh, the total director's vision. And it was kind of like, oh, I can't think of the name of the company that uh did real classy until the guy got
7: oh like miramax
10: yeah it was like miramax but smaller and like miramax when it started out would do art art style and you know real unique not not your action hero stuff but real solid films anyway cinema five was like that and um so Nick was very thrilled he had spent like a year editing the film, and they had a premiere in england and it was very successful and I went over there for that and then it was time for it to open in the u s and I was to go on a two week <clears throat> tour promotional tour, which I like doing promoting is not hard for me; I enjoy it and um I asked Don Rugoff's office, hey, can I see the film just to refresh myself so I can uh, know what I'm talking about? You know, it'd been a while. And so they said, sure. And we're in a big old theater. And I and I don't know, it seemed like there are a couple of other people there, but it's a big old movie house. And I'm watching this film. And it was, had been chopped to ribbons. And I, Without Ipecac, I almost threw up in the theater. I was so upset. And they had reduced the the film from two hours and 23 minutes to a two-hour flat movie. And I guess their theory was that they thought it was going to like clean up and two hours is long enough to get the next crowd in. Well, that really backfired. So I'm watching this mess of a film, and it turned out, I discovered that they had hired a guy who edits commercials to edit the film, and he had just hacked it to bits. It took him a week to edit what Nick Rogue and Graham Clifford took a year to shoot to edit. So he just did it willy-nilly. It was just like scenes were out of, out of order from Nick Rogue's cut. They were edited. It was just like, what the heck has happened? you know, you've lost a fifth of the film. One fifth is gone. So I had the bad, I had to call Nick and say, well, you know, it's all been chopped up and ruined. And believe, I think he was, I don't know how he reacted, but he did not sound happy. And I was to go on the road with this and promote this. And they wanted me to lie and say that's how that's the director's cut and so I remember my first appointment they put me up at a really nice hotel and I remember it was the village voice was my first you know appointment and I'm supposed to be discussing this film and uh I'm in my suite and um I remember they had their PR guy (laughs) sitting there listening to everything I am saying. And I'm like trying to sell this film and, you know, be real positive about it. But I was just so nervous and so upset and I'm lying. I'm really, you know, and I'm lying for the wrong people. I don't know these people. I don't know, you know, cinema five. I know Nick rogue, you know, and I just, uh at one point the um the uh PR guy goes to the bathroom and then I just quickly uh said to the um uh, Billy's voice people, I'm lying. It's terrible, they've cut it to bits, you know. I was like, Yeah, I'd spill the beans. <laughs> and and then the PR guy comes back out and he's like, So you know, and then I pick up on the story, so yeah, David Boy was wondering, you know, I'm like But I felt like like I was a prisoner of war, you know, and the warden had just left and I'm like trying to get help. Anyway, I call my manager, Pat McLean, and I said, Pat, you know, here's what's happened. I can't I can't do this. I can't lie and say this is how the film is. And she said, check out, get on a plane, come home. (laughs) And I just bailed and. Years later, that was the uh, only copy, they put it out in, you know, VHS, and it was just this horrible, and I'd get so many bad people say, like, well, that's going on, you know, it just makes no sense, and uh, it was a terrible movie, and, you know, it's getting horrible reviews by Rex Reed, and and this other guy named John Simon, they said, Rex Reed said, we're all running around in fright wigs, <laughs> And John Simon, who was a you know a high end reviewer of films, you know, slaughtered it, and everyone did. Everyone did. Of course, it didn't make two pennies to rub together, you know, for Cinema Five. But years later, I was living in New Jersey, and I read that Don Rugoff was no longer with the company. <laughs> so I thought, hmm, maybe I'll give him a call, and I call the company. <laughs> And I said, hi, my name is Candy Clark. And I I said, you know, I am constantly being asked about this movie, which wasn't true, but I said that. And I said, you know, you ought to bring out the um, uncut version. I said, you guys can make a lot of money. Just use the same poster strap a banner across it saying director's cut, uncut version. I said, I guarantee you're going to make a lot of money. I said, if you want me to go out and promote it and sell it, I said, that's easy for me to do. I'd love to do it. So he said, you know, the man I spoke to really liked the idea. And I, and so a couple of weeks later, I said, I'm going to follow up on that and see how it's going. Yeah, I spoke to the same man, and he said, well, bad news. I'm like, what? And he said, our uh, negative is all cut. I said, yeah, the negative was the dopey old commercial editor cut the negative. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so instead of printing the negative, and so there's two copies, no, they just chop up the original. I'm like, well, I said, well, I know where it is. I said, Call these people British Lion. They're in England. They'll help you out, and they did. And to this day, the horrible cut version is totally gone, and all you see is the uncut, the director's cut. And you know, it's it's as it. It, it took a while, but mission accomplished. Yeah, uh, and I'm so glad because I hated so much that chopped up version. Oh. Yeah, you lost a fifth of the movie. Plus, it was put all in other orders. It was like...
7: (laughs) You were in one that I love, that I don't know... I don't think you like it as much, which was your next film that was released, which was Citizens Band.
10: Citizens Band, yes. I did that with... You know, they were... At that time, you know... um, Two-way radios and, you know, Breaker Breaker and all of that stuff was going on. And I guess they thought they, you know, the writer, I think it was Marshall Brickman, if I remember correctly. Anyway, he was Jonathan Demi and Freddie Fields was the producer. And he had a script that I really wanted to do, which was more of a character study called uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, uh, which Diane Keaton eventually got. But my motivation for doing Citizen's Band was hoping to get Looking for Mr. Goodbar. And, um, you know, of course, that didn't happen. But, um, you know, Citizen's Band, uh, I I haven't seen it in years. I was with Paul Matt, you know. I I don't know. I just didn't care. for. I really wanted Looking for Mr. Goodbar. I thought that was better writing, and I liked the book and everything. So... Anyway, we got it into the White House, though. You did? Yeah, with Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Along the way, Jimmy Carter was running for president. <laughs> and they had a, a, uh, like a meet and greet, Jimmy Carter, at the, the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. So I, I went, and while I was there, I met this, his pollster, whose name was Pat Cadell. And I said, you know, I, Jimmy Carter's going to win. And I said, I'd like an autographed photo of him, because he's going to win. You know, you just have a hunch, and you just say it out loud. And um, Pat Cadell and I stayed in contact, and he got me an autographed picture of Jimmy Carter. And sure enough, he won. So Pat and Cadell and I had, you know, we'd talk here and there. And I said, Pat, you think you can get this film into the
0: White House? Because they had a screen.
3: more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
10: Meeting room there. And he said, I can try. And <laughs> next thing I know, me and Freddie Phil are... are in Washington, D.C., and we're in the screening room of the White House. And Jimmy Carter didn't serve wine. He only served water. He was a teetotaler, unlike his brother. And um, <laughs> it was folding chairs and a screen, like a projection screen. That was the screening room at the time. And um, I remember the lights. when We were all sitting on these folding chairs. And the lights go down. And then, oh, right before the lights go down, little Amy comes in. And she's sitting on the first row. And Roslyn. And uh, lights go down. The movie starts. And Amy has a flashlight. <laughs> and she's sitting on the first row. And she has this briefcase open. And she, the whole movie, she is looking into this briefcase. I don't know if she had a hamster. I don't know if she was doing her homework. I have no idea. But it was such a distraction. <laughs> and nobody said to little Amy, hey, Amy, you know, shut the briefcase. We're trying to watch a movie. So the whole movie was spent with this light in the first row and this flashlight. Anyway, it was a real pleasure. <laughs> and it was a real treat. And went out uh, after the movie, uh, me, Pat Cadel, Hamilton Jordan, and Jody Powell, went bar hopping, and I just remember they took us, Pat showed me one of the press bars where the press drink and socialize. And I guess talk about, you know, the events of the day. I swear to God, the whole town, that whole bar was smashed. I mean, moving and drunk. And I. And then we went to an, like a nightclub, and everyone there was... Drunks like you never saw, not even when I grew up in Texas at some of those honky-tonks. And I'm thinking, God, these people are running the country? Jesus. But it was so noticeable that, that the press corps, everyone was just drunk. Whether they are now, I don't know. But that was my first impression of Washington as people were just smashed. Anyway, we got it in the White House citizens' band.
7: <laughs> Did I read right that you are the voice of Stella Starr in Star Crash?
10: That is a total rumor. I, I've never even seen that movie. I've never been hired to redo someone's voice ever. I don't know where that came from, but it's on the Internet.
7: Oh, yeah. Well, it's got to be true then.
10: Yes. But I, you know, I will deny it forever. I don't know her. I never did a, her voice. I never dubbed her ever.
7: What was it like for you working with uh, David Lynch when you were on Twin Peaks?
10: That was quite the treat. Um, I just remember I had that character, and it was I played this wife who's kind of at the end of her rope with her husband. My husband's the sheriff. And I just have a litany of complaints about mold and water overflowing and dog shit everywhere and and how, you know, cars don't work. And, you know, I just come in and just give him a big reaming out. And so we were on in I guess we were in Washington state. Anyway, so I'm all in costume and I come barreling into that room and the door slams. You know, I just fling the door open and I lay into the uh, guy who's playing my husband and I, I do all the dialogue and then I look over and this was just a rehearsal and I look over and there's David it was a real small office and there's David Lynch sitting in the corner with a with a megaphone <laughs> I'm like. A red and white, you know, battery-operated megaphone. He's only like three feet away. I started laughing so hard. I'd never seen that in my life. I was like, who does that? (laughs) It was like a a, a 12 by 10 room, tiny, with a megaphone. Action. You know, like, what the heck? (laughs) It was funny. So that was a good, quirky little thing that I discovered about David Lynch. And then I got used, you know, and then we did another scene. And at that point, you know, the novelty was worn off. And yeah, he says action through the and cut through the megaphone.
11: <laughs> but yeah,
10: a little quirk that I like.
7: Well, what are you working on these days?
10: I uh, did some Criminal Minds. And let's see, what am I working on? Nothing. At the time, I'm working on my garden. I do a lot of hot rod shows, personal appearances at hot rod shows. And you just never know with acting, you know, when something will come up, you know. But meanwhile, you know, you just live your life.
7: Yeah, you've been doing that, um, the one character on Criminal Minds for a lot of years.
10: I know. It was uh, a lot of fun. And unfortunately, it's over the... the um it's, you know, it's it's final years and I'm so bummed because I really wanted to come back, have more conflict with my daughter who just doesn't understand me, is resentful.
7: If only she yeah. would figure it out.
10: If only she would just calm down and just let live and let live a little bit, you know. God, that was really a lot of fun. I really appreciated those people bringing me back.
7: Well, Ms. Clark, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you.
10: Thank you. I really appreciate you calling, and I hope it works out and
2: people listen.
7: Very curious how you came to write about The Man Who Fell to Earth. Was it the Camel connection? Yes. The book was actually more years in the making than you might
12: realize. When uh, Rebecca and I were working on the, the Donald Camel biography, and I was, went to California to meet David at one point, David Camel. And we were uh, talking about I, I actually, I was interested in in hearing about his career, and he made an offhand comment about the man who fell to earth, or maybe I asked him about it because I remember his name being on it. And he made an offhand comment, you ought to write about it. And so that was many years ago, and there was a, a book series out then uh, called Cultographies on cult films. So I had actually contacted the editors of that and asked them if they would be interested, and they were, but they said we're several years behind and, you know, we'll get to it when we can get to it. And so I didn't really pursue it, and I remember that at one point David wrote me an email and asked me, how's that going? And I said, well, I really haven't started it because I haven't been contacted by the editors. And I don't think they blew me off or anything. I think it was just that they had... Backlogged, and they had all kinds of titles coming out. So I really didn't think about it much. And then what happened with with the man who fell to earth was that I saw that that Arrow, you know, Arrow Video, uh, with whom I'd worked on the uh, Donald Campbell film, you know, Wide of the Eye, uh, to, to provide the audio commentary, was doing a book series. So I approached Fran, Francesco Simeone at Arrow and said, well, I've got a title you might be interested in. And so he wrote back and asked me about it and gave me, you know, broad ideas. Here's what we're looking for, length and all all of that stuff. So that's when I came back and I said, well, I'd love to do if if you if you're interested, I'd love to do the man who fell to earth. And so that's how that all came about. So it was a long gestation period, and went and, it, and like I said, I'm not going to say it went from one publisher to another. It was just that that didn't seem to be going anywhere. That is the previous idea, and I thought I'd love, I, you know, David. I'd love, I'd love to write this book. David has a lot of information about the production, and so that's how I approached Fran at Arrow Books and said, "Are you asking? Are you interested?" And he said yes, and that's how it started.
7: Well, I'm curious how you decided what aspects to cover, because I noticed that you cover a lot of that production. Was that because David was such a wealth of information? He was a wealth of information. And he had met, you know,
12: Walter Tevis and had long discussions with him about the novel. Uh, He was there during the entire production. And as you know from reading the book, it was David who really started the project, who wanted to make the movie in the first place. So, yes, I mean, that's uh, – there was a lot. I, I felt that that David had a lot to offer that people didn't know about, right? A lot of information that people didn't know about. It's so
7: strange he's listed as, what,
12: miscellaneous crew? Yeah,
7: it, it, there's a little fine
12: little <laughs> – fine little credit, you know – Tie in a line in the opening credits, you know, thanking the the participation and assistance of David Camel, and that was all contractual because when the thing started, and I talk about this in the book, when the the whole man who who felt Earth project started, uh, you know, David was actually going to be the the producer, and when uh, Nick Rogue joined uh, due to a number of complicated negotiations that I go into in the book. um, David was essentially told you can't produce it. Uh, It has to be, it's going to be, you know, British, British lion. And, uh, you know, subsequently he was, yeah, reduced to this minuscule little role. Although he says that actually I can, I contributed a lot to that film uh, little bits and pieces throughout. So, but yeah, I mean, it's it's one, one of those film business things, right. In terms of how these contracts are signed and negotiated and, and that's, so that's how he was relegated to that little minuscule opening, you know, credit. Were you a fan of the
7: movie before you started writing about it?
12: I was when I first saw it and I thought it was intriguing. It was mysterious. It was unusual. And I actually, one of my courses many years ago, I actually taught both the novel and film. And I went through a period where I didn't think about it very much. And until, again, it sort of came back when David and I started talking about it. All that came back in my interest in it. Yeah, I think being away from it, Mike, uh, for, a, for a few years uh, allowed me to approach it in a, in a way, a new way right? What I tried to do when I wrote the book was just to approach it uh, as if I knew nothing about it. Yes, I did, of course. But I mean, I was trying to just, you know, avoid, neglect everything that I had originally thought, my, my original perceptions on seeing it in the theater, and just to try to write about it without any preconceptions or any views about what I wanted to do with it. So that that's how that came about. So yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I do feel that I, I left, I had left it for a while. I didn't watch the film for a long time. I hadn't seen it for years and, and I felt that was good. I felt that that was a a good thing because it allowed me to renew, you know, my relationship
7: to it. Putting that aside a little bit, as far as trying to forget the movie, when you were looking at it, how was it comparing what you were seeing at your age now versus when it first came out?
12: That film was 43 years ago now. So when I wrote this, I was, you know, it was 41 years earlier or wrote the book. It was 41 years earlier. And uh, so I was that much younger. <laughs> it's changed. It changed uh, for me. I mean, I think as, you know, that's not unusual, but it, there were things that I felt interested me more, uh, about it and things that interested me less. Uh, so did I change my, you know, did I change my attitude towards the film? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that comes through in the book or not, but yeah, it it was a reevaluation of the film for me and I wanted it to be that way. I wanted to try to write about it as if I were reevaluating it. And I also watched it with Rebecca, who had never seen it. And and that was fun for me because she was uh, – and, you know, we wrote the Donald Campbell book together, biography together. And so she had never seen it. So it was interesting to just watch it with someone who literally was screening the film for the first time.
7: Well, what was her takeaways? Because it's such a rich tapestry.
12: Yeah. I think that she was
7: very engaged
12: in the film – for, let's say, two thirds of the way. And then the last third, I think that her interest began to wane. I think it became a little more disjointed. Um, um, uh, there were a lot of ellipses and gaps and uh, in the narrative. And we tended to sort, and I wrote about that in the book, not prompted by her comment, but I felt that there was a kind of Deliberate alienation happening uh, in our on our relationship with Thomas Jerome Newton and that, you know, the an alienation effect or Godardian alienation, as they used to call it. And so I think that she experienced that because towards the end of the film, that last third. Yeah, her 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 relationship, her perception of the film changed. And that was very instructive for me uh, to have someone who knew of the film. I mean, it's, it's, at least its title uh, is famous,
7: but who had never seen it. So that helped me rethink a lot of things. What were some of the most surprising things that you found out when you were doing your investigation?
12: The extent to which David Campbell's original idea, conception of the film, was so drastically different from Paul Mayersburg's the screenwriter and Nick Rogue. because it was David who brought in Paul Meyersburg. He knew him and, uh, he, 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 uh, Paul was, according to David was enthusiastic about it. And they had kind of the, the similar wavelength. They were, were thinking about the film in a very, what the film might be. The adaptation might be in a very similar way that began to change. Uh, as soon as Nick road road came on board and, so the direction of the film, the conception of the film altered. And so you can see a little bit, perhaps, of the original idea now and then, but the fact that it became a different film than it was originally conceived to be was the biggest revelation for me. David Campbell approached, you know, Walter Tevis with the idea that It would be a a kind of grand mystery uh, that we wouldn't know much about Thomas Jerome Newton, that he would remain a mystery, mysterious. Is he truly a Martian? Is he insane? Is he a mad genius? And he wanted it in that kind of tradition, a kind of mystery of a great man who may be mad. The fact that he claims that he's an alien is sort of preposterous and so on. So I think that the, for instance, I can give you an example. One of the biggest differences between original conception and the and the realized film are the scenes shot. I'm using Mars because I think that's the only logical place he comes from. Okay. Um, and I talk about that in the book. And although Tevis doesn't say Mars, but it clearly all the – textual evidence in his book he's 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 referring he's using mars is that david in david's mind there should be no scenes no nothing at all in the movie revealing thomas jerome on his home planet okay so we have those scenes where we see this desert right this 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 planet that's now a desert and we see Newton with his family and his children. And uh, that was a, a departure. That was a huge change from the original conception, because in David's mind, there should never be it would all. It should always have remained a mystery that uh, um, a puzzle, whether Newton was was crazy, um, you know, a crackpot, whatever, um, or or somehow just a human who, you know, has this delusion or something like that. So those scenes in his mind never existed. They they never would have been part of the film. And I don't know, you've taken that's a it's a something I thought about. What would that film be if you removed all of that? Right? Remove all of those scenes, just cut them out. Just if it were possible to take the existing movie, right, and go through and just chop those pieces out. Of Newton on his home planet and see how it played, you know. And so that's that's one of the things that I thought was intriguing and one of the things that was altered about the film. Now, uh, in defense, of course, that in the novel Newton does talk about his planet, and uh, he he does talk about home, and uh, it's essentially had. I mean, the novel novel emerged out of the 50s, that great fear of nuclear war. And so there has been a nuclear war, nuclear devastation uh, on Newton's home planet. So, you know, in defense, that material's there. But the way that David pitched it to Tevis was that he would do it as a kind of grand mystery story. So and it's not that at all, is it? I mean, it's nothing to do about Newton's identity uh, at all. I mean, we just allow the fact, you know, it's a given that he's an alien.
7: I'm really glad that you went into the backstory of who Walter Tevis is and a little bit more about his life.
12: You know, the novel was famous, the movie was famous, and I, I wanted people to know more about who, who he was and how, uh, how the book in some respect reflected aspects of his own life. I found as as you know from the book, I found that great book, uh a kind of biography written by his uh Jamie Tevis, who was his first wife, who talks about how what a sickly child he was. I mean elements of that are in Thomas Jerome Newton. How tall and thin and gangly he was. Uh he felt he felt awkward, you know, he he was nicknamed by his as when he was a school teacher when he was an English teacher you know his students called him Ichabod Crane uh that was invaluable and and I I felt that no one while understanding there was a novel out there really didn't know much about its author and how the author's own biography impacted what that novel became you know is and I I really thought that was a important aspect of the book because no one had written about that before i mean everybody knew walter tevis everybody knew he'd written other books he was famous for the hustler right um and uh which became the 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 highly regarded film uh with paul newman um released in 61 people knew that aspect of tevis that he was this
1: with the lucky land slut you can get lucky just about anywhere
12: But I don't think they realize had ever realized how much of that novel grew out of Tevis's own experience. So her book was a was just a really fascinating, you know, And I felt that was important to understand. To, and and like I said, my initial approach going at the film, to go at the film, to write about it, was to try to come at it in a way that I hadn't before. And one of the things that I thought was important to to go at the, 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 to, to approach the film, was to understand more about the novel's author and the novel itself, and then go back and look at the film again. I
7: was glad that you brought up the idea of them changing the dates a few times in the novel, revising it.
12: Tevis himself did that, and I, I don't—I never understood quite why he did that, um, because it went through printings. You know, there was the original first edition in '63, and then there was uh, a second edition in 1970, which is the the version of the, the the press, pressing, if you will, the publication of the novel that David Campbell found. And then there was the edition that was published when the movie came out, right? A kind of movie tie-in, as they used to call it in those days, when they reissued it. And all of those had the, his original dates. And then after the movie came out some years, the next edition, which was by Bantam, which was 82, he, he had altered the dates and and cut a little bit of material out. And I I don't know why he ever did that. I thought, leave it alone. (laughs) Leave the book for, you know, just as you wrote it. So, yeah, I I thought people would find that interesting, too, that he he had uh, altered the book because the book became sort of, you know, I don't know about how to say it, maybe not a bestseller, but the novel sort of took off after the film. And so maybe he felt that he would try to contemporize it by changing the dates or whatever.
7: Where in the project did David Campbell kind of lose control? What did you say it was when British Lion took over the production? I think so, because at that point he was told that they were
12: going to going to make, make the movie, but he wasn't going to produce it. And, you know, he said that was a huge, a huge blow. Because he had spent years developing. And I'm my guess, I mean, I don't know precisely what year he optioned the novel. But, I mean, because he himself was the one who optioned it. I mean, it wasn't British Line; It wasn't any other company. David himself optioned the novel. Uh, based on the pitch he gave Tevis, then Tevis would allow him to make it. So he was able to option him because Tevis liked his idea. So David had it for, let's just say... Seventy-two, because you know there was a a, a company, a television company in Britain, uh, the name escapes me at the moment, who was interested in turning it into a TV series, which is a really interesting idea. I mean, what what if the man who who fell to earth had become a a TV show? That is, a re, you know, a, a weekly series, right, with the the continuing adventures of of Thomas Jerome Newton. But that never happened. An interesting idea that never happened. And so as soon as uh, the company let the novel novel go, he snapped it up. So let's say that's 72, somewhere in there. And so he had been developing this thing for a number of years. And so the fact that he was removed, right, from producer was, was, yeah, he he said, yeah, that was a huge (laughs) blow, because I'd spent so much time and so much money uh, on, on, you know, getting it made. And he said, you know, Paul Mayersberg, who I'd approached to write the screenplay was doing it as a favor. He was writing it as a favor to me. In other words, that he wasn't doing it. I I didn't have to pay him. He so believed in it that he was doing it on his, you know, on his own because he so much wanted the movie to be made. So I'm going to say, and David says, it's essentially he lost control after Nick Rogue agreed to make it, and that was very quickly. I mean, uh, very soon after Nick Rogue agreed, it became his movie, even though Paul Meyersburg had been working on it for quite some time. uh, He and, and Mayersburg and Nick Rogue went off and essentially wrote their version, and that's what they went with.
7: What were those early versions by Mayersburg like when he was writing for Camel? I've never seen them. I wish I
12: I, I had read some. I could never get – I don't know whether David himself has any. I could never get a a version. I did come across – some years ago, I did come across a script of The Man Who Fell to Earth. And, uh, in fact, it was interesting because after we had prepared – to 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 talk tonight i i went looking for it and i couldn't find it but a version of that script but it's interesting because the music was totally different for instance at the opening of the film you know they're playing you know rocket man by elton john you know that's when we see the capsule splash down and you know in that mountain lake and the, you know that whole sequence where we're up in you know the nasa footage of the of the three-stage rocket, you know, the, the stages dropping off as it enters space. And that, that some of that material we have now in the opening credits, but over that would have been, I mean, in one draft of it was rocket man. I, I can tell you that much other parts of that script as I recall it. And I sure certainly wish I had it in front of me and I can't find it. Uh, other parts of that script read pretty much, not exactly, but, pretty closely to what we have now, right? Not every part of it, but parts of it read pretty closely. And so I'm going to guess that if production started, right, uh, in, 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 in early June of 1975, then that was a version that was sometime after Nick Rogue came aboard, which was early 75, let's say February, April, somewhere in there. I think it was a version right in that, in that range. And it was moving in the direction of the film we see now. So that's the earliest version I've seen, but I haven't seen any one version earlier than that one.
7: I can't imagine that it was written in that fractured story style.
12: No, it couldn't have been.
7: Th- those kinds of
12: changes, right, or that approach happened in the editing room. Yeah, it, it, it had to have, uh, where it became, I mean, I, I describe Nick Rogue in the book as, you know, a kind of one of the, the premier modernists of cinema. By that, I mean it became that elliptical narrative of uh, out-of-sequence flashbacks, partial flashbacks, in other words, only fragments of a flashback, partial out of out of sequence flashbacks, that whole thing I believe happened in the editing room, which was uh, you know somewhere after uh, September of seventy five and and prior to the premiere because it it was in the editing room for several months and you know of course that it was going to be distributed by Paramount the then head of Paramount who saw right they who saw. Uh, Nick Rogue, the the cut, right, that that Nick Rogue had prepared, that's when Paramount essentially backed out of it and said, we don't want it anymore. And so it went through this, you know, oh, we're going to sue you. It's all, you know, this is all legal now and we're going to, you know, the, you're going to regret this and so on. It was Barry Diller who was then head of Paramount. Paramount had released... Nick Rogue's Don't Look Now, which had done very well. So they were interested in working with him again. So Paramount had had agreed to 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 essentially pay offset production costs if they got American distribution rights. And so when Michael Dealey, who was, you know, the producer, screened it for Barry Diller in New York, Rogue's Rough Cut in New York, and Diller had become chairman of Paramount in nineteen seventy-four. That is after Don't Look Now, but prior to Don't you know The Man Who Fell to Earth. And Barry Diller screened it and said, Absolutely no way are we going to release this movie? We ask for a linear film. This is not the movie that Paramount bought. The picture we bought is linear. And this isn't was what Michael Dealey said. And Dealey said, well, it's only a rough cut without any polish or without any music. Uh, there's no post sync or sound effects. And Barry Diller, according to him, was unmoved. And Diller said, forget it. We're, we're, we're forget this. We're out of this deal. And so that put him in a bad way. Right. That is, you know, Michael Dealey and Barry Spikings. Right. I mean, that, they were now in trouble. And so that's when they went to Cinema, you know, Cinema 5, right? Donald Rugoff's New York-based Cinema 5, which is the, the, the uh, distribution company that released it in the United States. And he agreed to give them oh, – Mo, I don't remember the figure. Uh, I think he gave them between $800,000 and $900,000 for the North American, North American rights to the film. Deely said that helped us a lot. I mean, the fact that he agreed to take it and to give us that amount helped us immensely. But the point is that that after that screening, that disastrous screening in New York where Diller said no way, no how, you know, the man who fell to earth was now, you know, understood in the industry, you know, considered in the industry as as a damaged goods. Right, there's something wrong with this movie. We're not touching it with a ten foot pole. So the fact that Cinema Five, that's liked offbeat, unusual European import films, picked it up helped them. But no Hollywood, you know, studio was going to pick that film up. No way, no how. Right. So that is a, is a result, right, of of Nick Rogue's decision to. To make it a what do you want to say a modernist you know art house film and I don't I don't necessarily say that pejoratively but I mean that was his decision to cut it that way and and to turn it into that that kind of disjointed highly elliptical narrative I looked up what David Bowie said about the movie and I don't think he especially liked it. <laughs> I mean, if you look at interviews with him when he talks about it, he says, uh, he says, I I don't know. I, I don't, uh, I don't find that the, 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 the film is, uh, there's nothing warm about it. Uh, the scene, the intimate scenes were, you know, uh, with Mary Lou, the sex scenes were strange and odd he found the film sort of uninteresting. I mean, he just didn't, he didn't, he himself didn't really care for it. Now he didn't say that at the time. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he did his duty to promote the movie, but personally years later, and of course I don't mean two or three years. I mean, this is 20 years later, right? Where he admitted that he didn't care for the film very much.
7: But then he revisited the film in his own work, which I found interesting. Yes. One of his last works, Uh, With
12: Lazarus, right, which which uh, premiered shortly before his death. Uh, And, uh, you know, Nick Rowe had made a statement, I think, which was interesting about the man who fell to earth. He said, imagine the movie. Imagine the man who fell to earth as all the the hallucination of a of a of a dying industrial magnate all in his head. It's all a fantasy. And it's, it's almost like Bowie took that idea with Lazarus, right, and said, OK, and, and sort of staged it around that idea that Thomas Jerome Newton was in this confined, uh, misanthrope, confined, if you will, like, a, like a, a Howard Hughes misanthrope, right, in this room, reliving his life and uh, with elements that come out of The Man Who Fell to Earth. So yeah, that is interesting that he returned to that. I mean, that that is. But
7: maybe he was trying to just rethink the movie itself. I also find a little ironic that one of Bowie's, in my opinion, best roles was when he was Nikola Tesla. And I can see Tesla almost falling from the heavens at some point. Yeah, Prestige. Yes, and he was. He was very good in that movie. I can't imagine rogue working with rip torn because torn's personality was another oversized one i don't know if it's barry spikings might have been who
12: brought both rip torn and buck henry into it Uh, in other words that was part of the producers deal that they represented them or they were clients or some connection so that's how both buck henry and 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 rip torn got involved in the first place was not Nick Rogue, but that kind of came with the producers that came with them, that they were part of the deal. And at that point, as you know, Nick Rowe was involved with romantically involved with Candy Clark. And that's sort of how she came into the movie. I did find and noted in the book that he and Candy Clark absolutely just detested one another. I don't know whether that, whether that affected what finally is on the screen but he, during the production, from what I gather, you know, he had his own coterie of, you know, people, and he kept to himself with them, and the it was minimal contact between him and Candy Clark, and how Nick Rogue figured in there, I don't know, but their relationship was not a good one during the filming. You can see photos of them together, and everything looks great, but, but it wasn't. Ripped Torn... That raises an interesting question. I think Buck Henry raises an interesting question. It's kind of an odd casting. You know, you wonder who might have been a better choice. And I don't, you know, I I don't know who, who might have been. I've never thought about the movie that way. If you don't have Rip Torn, who would it be? If you don't have Buck Henry, who would it be? But let's say that you replace one or the other. You have a totally different movie. So that's how they they got involved, and and it is rather a you know it's not a big cast by any means, is it? The only character, I mean, there is no, I mean, there is the the equivalent, you know, of of Buck Henry, the lawyer, right? His lawyer. There is a character that uh, is is Rip Torn, and in fact, he's the one, correct, who suspects that there's something odd or strange about Thomas Jerome Newton, and he becomes, as it were, the kind of Judas figure. They are in the novel, and I think that their roles are approximate what we see in the film. Now, uh, we don't have a sequence equivalent to where the Buck Henry character is thrown out the window, for instance. Uh, There's nothing like that. What we have, we have a scene somewhat like the scene when uh, Rip Torn takes the takes the x-ray photograph of Thomas Jerome Newton, which reveals his identity. Right. Which where he sees that strange lack of internal sort of structure. Uh, There is a scene like that in the novel. Uh, But, you know, again, I think that one of the things that was changed from the novel uh, and, and and from the novel and is in the 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 film is that kind of nebulous vague corporate presence there's the character earlier in the film this is america uh, corporate america and we tend to keep we intend to keep it that way so there and then you have that strange figure on the hill at the beginning when newton first lands and he's kind of trying to climb down that 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 uh, slag heap near the, the you know the, the old uh, coal mine at the beginning, and you see that figure simply called the Watcher in any literature, any, any, anything I've ever ra- read about the film. That's an addition, for instance. But the idea is there. In other words, that there was a sense at some point the CIA, and the American government learned about Thomas Jerome Newton's landing. So I think that they sort of concretized, I mean, made an actual character, uh, the one, the watcher who appears watching Bowie as he, because he stumbles and slides down that slag heap at the beginning of the movie. And then we see him later staring at Bowie asleep, right? When he's confined in that, uh, apartment building, right? That that decrepit apartment building at the end, and he, he now has a beard, and he's simply staring at the sleeping Bowie figure. So I think they added him just to literalize, to make actual that idea that somehow the moment that Thomas Jerome Newton landed, he was known about, that the CIA and the American government had known about it. So, yeah, that that paranoid aspect of it is there, but I guess they had to sort of actualize that in some way or another. What were your biggest challenges
7: putting this together?
12: I wanted to write about it in a fresh new way. I remember getting comments from people, uh, colleagues and others, people I know, comments through Facebook, comments on email. uh, To the effect, it was a a challenge. I I took it as a challenge. But the comments essentially were, what else is there to say about it? And, uh, well, of all the books that could have been done, why this one? I mean, what else do we want to know? What do you, what do you think you can add? Well, you know, I've told you, I think I could add information about the author. I think I can add information about how the project started with David Campbell, the competing visions of what the film should be. I don't think that's been published. I don't think any of that's been published. So, But I took that as a challenge. In other words, it didn't offend me. It's like, okay, I'll show you what I think we need to know, right? The book is, is a book about what don't we know about the movie. So my operating procedure throughout was to try to explore the movie talking about things we don't know or haven't considered before. So that was the, that was the biggest challenge is just to convince people that another book should be written about the man who fell to earth, on the other hand i don 't know that there 's been that many, but apparently there there' have been commentary, and I cite some of them in my bibliography, of course there's others on it, but they 're nothing like mine, and they 're more about Bowie and more about this and that than the actual production, uh, the actual day to day production, the actual individuals who are involved, you know all of that I think uh, to my knowledge, in my research hadn 't been Hadn't been talked about before. I didn't approach it as an auteur film. I mean, okay, this is another, yet another, a film made by Nick Rogue. I, I didn't want to do that. I, I, di- I didn't think that was particularly informative, to be honest. And, and yeah, I mean, you start exploring, well, what do we know about the film? It, it, they're actually, you're right, there isn't that much. And, I mean, there's some out there, but a lot of it surrounds Bowie and his mythology and or auteurist criticism about from based on you know reg as an auteur that kind of thing but i mean the actual sort of specifics production development production and so on i i just didn't think there was enough out there and and so i, I think in that way i find it a contribution to our understanding you know i'd like to do and there are many other films out there one would love to do right uh, that probably need in my opinion, the kind of uh, of research that I I did on The Man Who Fell to Earth. And it's done very well, I might say. It's done, I know that there's an Alamo Drafthouse in Omaha, where they have copies continually available, and they continually sell, and they continually replace. I mean, that's a small index, that's a small indicator. But, you know, it seems to me to be doing pretty well, because I think people are interested in the movie, and they want to they want to know more about it in, in ways that aren't just simply more Bowie or more, more Roe, but, but other kinds of approaches and other kinds of questions. I'm happy to say it's done pretty well. So I, I think I've answered the question, the questions, why another book or why this book? I, I think because it, it answered the kind of questions people had about the movie. Oh, at least I hope so. That's why it's selling.
7: Well, what's next? What are you working on now? Rebecca and I are are working
12: on a a book, another book together. It's a change. You might be surprised. What we wanted to do was it's called Nuances of Feeling, and it's about sentiment and cinema and sentiment. And so what we're trying to explore are what I would call what are perceived to be conventional films that have an element of strangeness. An oddness to them. So, for instance, uh, uh, a film that we are very much intrigued by um, is now Voyager, uh, the Betty Davis film, uh, from uh, made virtually at the same time, back to back, overlapping with Casablanca in 1942, and that movie is very strange. I think it's. Uh, I showed it this semester to my students, and they loved it. They absolutely loved it and they'd never heard of it. But I tried to approach it as if I'm glad you, you know, good. I'm glad you loved it. It's a great film, but there's so much we can't account for in it. There's so much strangeness in it. There are so many things that give it a kind of quality that let's say classic Hollywood films don't have. And and actually, let me digress a second. I think that's part of what always attracted me about The Man Who Fell to Earth is trying to account for its strangeness. And so I guess I'm a, I, I, I guess I'm a, a drawn to films like that where there seems to be something about them you can't quite identify but which you need to and which you want to because it's like an itch. Like, you know, how does this thing work? Why is that stuff there? And so well, that's what we're working on. And this is a major thing, a major project, and it's – We've been working on it now a long time, and it's coming together, but it's very difficult. But that's a model film, and uh, it's coming out in a criterion in a couple weeks, finally. It went out of print. You know, it's interesting. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. When people always discover that I teach film, film history, and film genre, and blah, 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 one of the questions I've, I've, I've been asked over and over and over is, Oh, well, do you teach now Voyager? And so I think there's this huge cultural interest in that movie, which Criterion, I guess, finally realized. Those are the kinds of films that we're we're seeking to talk about. And that's what we're doing right now. So, yeah, it's a big change from a film like uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth. But I've learned so much. And, and of course, we've written together before. And that's always a good good thing for, for both of us. The, the usual joke from people when they say, oh, we're working on a new book together. Uh, how's it going? And, you know, our, our stock shtick response is that we're not divorced yet. But, you yeah, we we like working together and, and we bring different things to the project. So that's what we're working on. That's a long answer. Uh, so it's a change up. You know, it's a change from what i've i normally have been doing you know in terms i mean I, I i have an article i'm working on that's going to to be published in a book on uh the continuing influence of 50 science fiction and i'm working on that individually becky's working on a project uh um uh, on, on british novels and and uh that's her own independent project so we work on individual things but
7: that's the one that that's the book project we're both working on well sam thank you so much for your time it is always a pleasure talking with you oh likewise
12: well i don't know we always seem to have a good time don't we
7: I'm very curious how you got into writing.
11: Oh, I guess I always wrote. I wrote from the age of eight. So I had a kind of, you know, sort of vaguely traumatic childhood, which is always a good recipe for an author. So, uh, yeah, so just started writing and all through high school, college, everything.
7: From what I understand, you did a, a zine back in the day.
11: I sure did. I did a fanzine in in Los Angeles in 1977. That was really pretty. UK, yeah, I know, UK centric. I, I look at copies online now, and they sell for way more than I've ever made out of my books, but that's okay.
7: What were you, you were doing? Like Xerox and uh, glue stick, or
11: exactly Xerox and uh, yeah, little ransom note, letter styles, and all that. Um, really, just sort of interviewed the damned Blondie, all kinds of things, and then got bored with it early on and sort of stopped mid summer 77. So it was ephemeral, but that's kind of how my attention span went.
7: How were you connected with the music scene?
11: I just always loved it. I ended mean, having been a Bowie fan and then transitioned. I was in London in 77 when punk was, well, it was breaking, but it was broken for, for most English people, but we were first becoming aware of it. And, uh, so, I just forgot all about Bowie and went on to the punk thing with a passion. and pretty much every other cult that followed I did I went along with that. so but music music writing was the first kind of well, I suppose the first writing I did for for money. when I was little. I was writing any old thing about surfing or other things that I did. but
7: <laughs> from what I understand, you wrote for like Mojo and Spin and some of the other ma- music magazines.
11: Yeah, I, that was a great thing. And then also, I got really interested in English soccer, and I wrote, about, wrote for some soccer magazines in England and a little bit here as well. So that's a kind of strange transition, but that's what I did.
7: When did you switch to uh, writing books?
11: Let's see. I wrote my first book when I was in grad school at USC. So in, in the 80s, I was, yeah, I was doing still both, both things, music writing and writing a, a, a novel or novella and some short stories. And in fact, the, the novella and short stories is going to be reissued as an e-book early in the new year. So it's kind of strange to see that see that come around. Yeah, a lot, a lot of Bowie in it and a lot of punk and all that stuff. It's nice to see it have a, a second life of some sort, I guess.
7: And how did you transition and start writing about War Notes?
11: Yeah, it's a good question. I get that a lot. Um, and I think I probably alienated a lot of my War Notes uh, fans by writing about Bowie. But there you go. Um, it I, I was wanting to do a book... I was wanting to do a a nonfiction book because fiction was so uncertain. A friend said, why don't you write a book about your favorite actor? And I thought, okay, my favorite actor is Warren Oates. I thought, well, there must be a book about Warren Oates that I don't know of. But amazingly, there wasn't. So there I jumped in and did it. And what a wild ride I had. So it was so much fun.
7: How was the book received when it came out?
11: yeah well, you know it did really good reviews, and that was so rewarding because I really got so lost in it. It took me four years and actually what I turned in was like two hundred pages longer than what eventually came out and I really got carried away with so much in-depth things it, yeah, it's been it's been very consistent and nice and i I loved working with the University Press of Kentucky on it. They were a great home and continue
7: to be. You said that you've written about Bowie since the mid-70s, so I'm curious, how did you decide that you are going to just focus on the Man Who Fell to Earth period?
11: I was out with some friends in Santa Fe trying to find something to follow up Warren Oates with, which was really proving difficult because it was just so rewarding and so much fun that I thought, well, what can I do next? Nothing was appealing to me. And, um, a writer, a writer friend suggested, what about a, you know, favorite, uh, a biography of a movie type book. And I thought, hmm, okay. And then a man who fell to earth came to mind eventually when I'd gone through other films I thought I might want to write about. And I thought now that that would be very cool. And it was, it was, it is. Yeah.
7: Were you a big fan of the movie before you started writing
2: about it?
11: Oh, definitely. i would seen it probably already about sixteen times because of well, yeah, I <laughs> know. Now I'm going into almost thirty. It's really yeah, yeah. but <laughs> and the Wild Bunch probably up there too. I've seen both so many times now.
7: The Man Who Fell to Earth is not necessarily the easiest movie to get into, and I'm curious, what was your initial impression of it when you saw it all those years ago?
11: It was so much better than we than I thought, and it was very quite. Dreamy, and we loved the depiction of Bowie as sort of other. Well, it was otherworldly, but that was that was great. Um, I'd gone to a premiere in, um, well, a premiere with no one there in Westwood. Our screening it was in Westwood and on the big screen to see, yeah, you know, my hero was something terrific. So, and I, I I liked the film. I mean, I thought, yeah, well, definitely, I did. I'm not sure that I realized that was New Mexico when I saw it the first time, but I think that adds so much to the the look of it especially considering that when it, the book was written, it was set in Kentucky, coming back to Kentucky. But it would not have been the same film, I don't think, with the Kentucky landscape.
7: You talked to, I don't know how many people writing this book. I was just floored by your footnotes, just all of the interviews that you did for this. And I've got to ask, how long did it take to put the book together?
11: Uh, well, actually, compared to Warren's four years, um, just a couple, two, two or three years. I'm not two and a half, maybe. I just really got my head down and got on with it. So I didn't take as long as all that.
7: Well, I'm just impressed that you could track all those people down.
11: Yeah, it will. You know who I never tracked down and still haunts me to this day is the girl who played the daughter, that alien daughter. And she was like a Hollywood actor kid, and it's impossible to find her. And nobody remembers her name, anything. It just drives me crazy. Other than that, I found pretty much everybody...
7: I wouldn't beat yourself up too much, but I mean, you're talking to the costume designers, the makeup people. I mean, just uh, everybody behind the scenes and so many people in front of the camera. I was just amazed by the depth of research that you did.
11: Oh, thank you. That's my thing. I just get so into it that I almost go maybe too far into it. But I love the the dimension that the extras and like the, the casting agent uh, in New Mexico, the younger guy. Um, it was so much fun to get their take on things because a lot of people had told their stories many times before. The, the people, you know, above the line, and um, it was fun to get people who were right there, seeing it from a totally different perspective, and you know, watching David Bowie go fishing and crazy things like that. You know, it was just charming. Yeah.
7: Well, what's your approach? Do you just go out and just start finding interviews, or do you go into the archives and start looking through, like, the local New Mexico papers, or what is your way That's to do
11: exactly it? That's exactly it. I use the, paper, the newspapers a lot, and archives if I can, and then generally, if, I, if you find one name, with any luck, you can kind of find some more. So. But also a lot of, lot of time spent in New Mexico kind of nosing around, and always, always librarians and people from, you know, historical societies are just invaluable.
7: What were some of the most surprising things for you to uncover? Because I know that you are a fan of this film to begin with.
11: How Bowie was really up for anything. How he did not play the superstar role at all. He was willing to, you know, even with damage to his eye, wear these contact lenses for the that created the cat's eyes, you know, for the alien that were really quite painful. And he was not a prima donna at all. He was, you know, willing to do anything that he was asked to do. And I thought that was pretty
7: impressive. What was the relationship like between him and Nick Rogue?
11: I. I think it was respectful, but I think Bowie felt that he was being kept out of the loop at times for uh, getting scripts and so on, because um, I think Rogue wanted to keep him off balance to keep, you know, the character more uh, estranged. That was not setting so well with with, with Bowie. But I, overall, I don't think there were any bust-ups or any big fights or anything like that. So... Although I don't know how close they remained after the film, I think Bowie was initially uh, stressed out from the, uh, the the doing the role and had written the song "Word on the Word on the Wing" that's on Station to Station about how traumatized he was to have made the film. So he didn't really do a lot to promote. Of course, it was not all that well received when it came out, but he was not behind it. He was already on to the next thing. So and also a little disgruntled that he didn't get to do the soundtrack, which. There's a variety of theories as to why that didn't happen, but in a way, I think it probably was for the best.
7: Well, yeah, it feels like a real he said, he said kind of thing when it comes to that. And I'm curious what your take is on that whole situation.
11: I think that, like, there are three things that maybe that Bowie got bored doing the soundtrack Or that Nick Rogue was not happy with what Bowie had given him, if there was anything, in fact. Or lastly, that Bowie was offered less money than than he was promised and he was just miffed about it all. So I think that might have been something that would make you stop creating. And maybe he just wasn't really behind it to begin with. I'm not sure. But I have a feeling money, (laughs) money would always be a thing.
7: As a Bowie fan, when you went to see it for the first time, were you upset or saddened that there was no Bowie music in it?
11: No, I think it was a good thing. I think I agree with Nick Rogue about that, that it would have taken uh, you in a wrong direction to have his music. It would have made, you know, Bowie the singer and star. And I know there were some songs initially included in one of the versions of the screenplay, Paul Mearsberg's versions, but I think that was just to make it more saleable. I mean, they had Rocket Man and Changes and Space Oddity in there, but... I, was, I think Graham Clifford told me that was standard practice to get a script filmed in those days,
7: or maybe even still today. Yeah, I was very surprised when Graham Clifford was talking about using uh, Pink Floyd as a temporary yeah, score.
11: that would be strange, wouldn't it? I mean, he was still really firmly behind that, but I, I don't know myself. I, 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 think, I think what John Phillips put together in a really ridiculously short period of time is pretty darn
7: good. I can almost hear, and no pun intended. I can almost hear echoes of Pink Floyd through some of some parts of that.
11: I agree. I agree, and that's probably his, his roommate was probably told that we need something like this, and the Stoma Yamashita stuff is quite beautiful. It's yeah, I know a soundtrack came out, but I think they the the compiler was disappointed in how how it came how it was released a couple years ago, a year ago, a couple years ago.
7: New Mexico was kind of a rough and tumble area at that point. I've heard stories of uh, Dennis Hopper and his commune, for lack of a better term, and Taos and just how wild it was. Did they have any sort of issues with filming there?
11: Some of the locals, as one of my interviewees in Madrid said that um, some of the locals were a little unhappy because maybe they had a little sideline in growing something that was still illegal, <laughs> no longer illegal in California, but still illegal in New Mexico. And they didn't want to have any of that appear on film. I think there was a little, some tension in a bar between when Bowie was out with Martin Samuel, his who did the, fab, the wonderful hair for that. I think there was a little, yeah, a scene in a bar where it got a little testy. And I, I always liked that, that Bowie refers to it as a Border bar, but they never really got that close to Mexico. All I can think of is maybe they were close to Texas, so you know, which could be could be a, a border of another kind. Chartres is the furthest south they got, and that's that's a tough town. So where he would have, they would have most certainly stood out. <laughs> well, really anywhere they went, including Santa Fe and Albuquerque. Yeah, I mean, I think people. I know one of my interviews said we we just didn't see people like that. We didn't see people like Bowie, or even in particular Angie when Angie Bowie rolled into town. They thought they had really never seen anything like that. So.
7: Yeah, I was really glad that you covered having um, Angie and Do you pronounce it Zoe or Zowie? Yes,
11: I say Zoe. Okay, with Bowie, but I've heard all kinds of all kinds of pronunciations. And of course, now it's easy to say Duncan. So I think she's often given short shrift because she's probably not the easiest person, but then neither was he. So um, I think it's deserved that she gets her day. He would not have had the same style or ideas at all without her.
7: And I'm trying to remember the name of the other woman who slashes mother. I can't remember her.
11: Uh, Ola, Ola Hudson. Yeah. Ola Hudson, those beautiful suits. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is true. She, she, contributed a lot to the, his look, his yeah, more tailored look in in the film. But it also breaks my heart to think that all those clothes <laughs> were donated to the Salvation Army in, in Albuquerque when they left. They'd, well, maybe not the Ola Hudson clothes, but all the rest of the things that they had put together that maybe Ralph had brought in, they just got rid of them. So what a field day if you were in the thrift store that day. <laughs> just any, any, any number of things I'd love to have.
7: I was really glad that you gave the history of the fedoras.
11: Oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's fun. It's hard to, yeah, that's an amazing story to see um, what actually happened, where they all ended up. And obviously there were more than one, but that Moby had one and lost it
7: and so on and so forth. It's pretty incredible. How was Rip Torn at this time?
11: Well, I know he liked to go fishing. I know that he was drinking heavily, but he was not alone in that or any other kind of substances that might have been floating around. Um I think he was not thrilled to be in the film, but he was happy to be working, and he had friends there, so he, you know, he was fine. I don't know that he and Bowie were best of buddies, but they worked okay together. I mean, the the scenes are terrific, and I think I know, I know he was uh, at one point very concerned about filming a love scene, well, he had several, but uh, a couple, and uh he didn't want to look, you know, out of shape with these young coeds. And so he's trying very hard to get fit like in a couple days. And obviously, that doesn't quite work. so. (laughs) So funny.
7: I've read differing accounts about how Candy Clark got along with Bowie. It seems like from reading your book, it seems like they got along well. And then I read other accounts where they didn't get along well. What's your take on that?
11: some people have told me he really felt that she overacted or stepped on his lines a lot. And then I, in other ways, I mean, I never, he never seemed to have said anything against her or, but, or really much of anything at all. I know he thought her best acting was done in that, that ad libbed uh, scene where they're in the limo and the train goes by. Or, yeah. The way they're stopped at the, the the level crossing and the train goes by and she kind of goes into a thing about what the trains used to be like when she was young and, he really complimented that. I don't know with that one. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's rumored that maybe they had a dalliance, but I know she's denied that, and not many people would deny a dalliance with David Bowie.
7: So. Then she was also going out with Rogue at the same time, I believe.
11: True, true. But Angie had kind of intimated that. Who knows what was going on during their script meetings back on, in their house on Doheny Drive.
7: Who were the most challenging people to get in touch with?
11: Well, Rogues' health. Nick Rogues' health was not so good. Although they were, he was certainly very. His wife facilitated it so graciously. Uh, I couldn't get Paul Meyersburg. Oh, Buck Henry. Sadly, not. Yeah, I just couldn't get him. So yeah, so that would be. But everybody else was fairly easy. It's kind of like, if you know one English person, you know them all. I forget who said that in my book. Maybe it was Howard Rubin. If you know one person, you know them all. So one English person, and it's still kind of that way a little bit. So. From the previous book, from the previous book, I had known Katie Haber, and she's like the best liaison a person could dream of. She was Sam Peckinpah's secretary, and she still knows everybody in town. So, like the best thing in the world, just to know her in many, many ways.
7: Did your opinion of the movie change while you were doing all this research?
11: Yeah, I mean to see it so many times. Some things are creaky a little. Certainly, the pace, by modern standards, is is painfully slow. Um, I still never got my head around the ping pong scene. I, I just I can't. I don't know at that point. I just want to say, make it stop. I can't. I don't like that scene. I feel like it makes the movie way too long. Beyond that, no. I think it's still very lyrical and ethereal and kind of, as Bowie said, it had a, a real sense of magic and foreboding about it, and I, I think that holds true.
7: Why do you think Bowie revisited that with the whole Lazarus?
11: It is so interesting to me, because he had, you know, so much material he could have chosen from, but he must have strongly connected with the character, and I know he once he had some distance from the film, he tended to to speak really fondly of it. As I say, when it came out, I think he distanced himself a little bit because it had been cut and also because it, the reviews were not spectacular. But certainly now it's much more highly thought of and, and deservedly
7: so. How do you think that that affected his relationship with Hollywood because he would go on to be in so many other films after that?
11: It is so true. Um, I, I don't know. I think maybe people had seen, seen him in it and seen, knew that he, was, he could deliver the goods. I mean, here he was a, essentially a first-time actor, definitely in a major film. Yeah, I think it probably one thing led to another, and yeah, it's true he did continue to be, continue to work in film right up to the end.
7: So, what's next for you?
11: Ah, kind of like a little prequel. I'm collaborating on a sort of pre prequel of to the man who fell to earth. So, I'll let that be a mystery. But that, any Bowie fan would probably say, I know what that is. <laughs> so, and that's for sort of collaborating with an artist in London doing a kind of pretty looking book. Well, not that, not that. Earthbound isn't pretty. I think my publisher did a beautiful job putting it together.
7: Susan Gamble, where's the best place for people to keep in touch with you or keep up on your work?
11: Like I guess Facebook, and then I, I should be putting together a better site than that. But
7: well, thank you so much for your time. This was great.
11: Oh yeah, it was so much fun talking to you. It's-
7: Right, we're back and we're talking about the man who fell to earth and did you guys get a chance to see the tv movie please tell me you did i tried and i couldn't do it of all the things that i've made andrea watch over the last however many years we've been together 20 some years she put her foot down when it came to the Good tv movie <laughs> she she was just like after this I get the remote back, and you are not watching anything in this house for the next 24 hours. She should have made it 48. Oh, it is bad. It is really...
9: I don't know why they would do that. It's uh, So I definitely am a person who hates remakes, and I'm sure there are some exceptions. And, you know, anytime I say I hate remakes, people always are obnoxious and say, what about the thing? And what about invasion of the body centers? Like, yeah, shut up. That's fine. This sort of need to say, okay, we have this really great film. I know instead of making another interesting film, let's just make this one again. (laughs) And this is a perfect example of how that is a horrible concept that
7: should just shouldn't be done. It doesn't help that this is 1987 when they're making this version. So by that time, all of these other movies and TV shows and all this stuff have happened. So now the Man Who Fell to Earth TV movie feels like it's a pilot for something else. And it feels like it's a pilot for almost like a Starman reboot. Like, it, it, I know there was the Starman TV series and the Starman movie, and it feels a little like that. It feels a little V when he takes his contacts out and he's got the cat's eye kind of thing. It feels a little... Gosh, there were a bunch of other things while I was watching. I'm just like, this seems so similar to other things. And he doesn't necessarily have the brains that Thomas Jerome Newton had. He doesn't necessarily have the... He doesn't have the looks. I mean, this is the guy that played Perfect Tommy in Buckaroo Banzai, and... He doesn't even have the same name. He goes by John Dory, which I guess sounds like John Doe, but not enough. And, man, it's just really strange. And then also that his big invention is the first gigabyte computer chip.
9: It's bad on so many levels.
7: And in this one, it's not... Mary Lou. It is Eva Milton. So I don't know if they're making a John Milton reference there, but I, I might be overthinking this. And that's Beverly D'Angelo. And she's got a bratty son who is into wearing a lot of fringe on his jacket and shoplifting records and cassette tapes from places played by the one and only Mr. Will Wheaton,
9: which is horrible. <laughs> Like, how can you make an adaptation of The Man Who Fell to Earth worse? Let's add Will Wheaton into the mix.
7: You got another Star Trek alum with Robert Picardo as the FBI agent who's chasing him. And then you've got Bruce McGill as the uh, Bryce character who uh, is Vernon Gage for whatever reason. They couldn't name any of the characters the same names, which was just absolutely bizarre there must have been some sort of weird rights thing going on with this but yeah and then it ends on a hopeful note of him possibly rescuing his family so as it ends i'm just like was this a tv pilot it really feels like it was and i know that they're actually making a tv series or trying to i'm not sure if it's been shot yet or if it's just in the pre-production stages but alex Kurtman is working on a tv series of the man who fell to earth and i'm just afraid of what that's going to be
9: it's going to be horrible
7: did either of you guys see lazarus the david bowie play because i didn't even know that this existed until doing research for this
8: i have not seen it i mean that wasn't that like the uh the opening of it was the last time he appeared in public I want to say.
7: I think you're right. That's
9: something that I would love to see, but haven't.
7: I would love to see it as well, because it's interesting that his last project ends up going back to Man Who Fell to Earth. You know, of all the things in his career that he could look back on, that he ends up revise, revising and revitalizing this Thomas Jerome Newton character. And I, I don't remember which... Uh, Because I think they've had like seven different productions. But I think the New York production was Michael C. Hall as Thomas Jerome Newton, which I find very interesting because I think he's a very interesting actor. And Skiz, I can't remember if it was you that turned me on to this or not. But the David Bowie is the man who fell from Earth 2017 documentary. I found that really interesting.
8: Yeah, I did, too. I I found it on uh, Vimeo, I think, for free. I kind of got the feeling that it had to have been based on the quality of the film clips that maybe it coincided with the release of the Blu-ray or something. I I don't own the the film on DVD or Blu-ray. I haven't seen the criterion. So I don't really know what kind of extras are on them, but that this film felt like they had a lot of access to material and really high quality material and, and rights to uh music and and film clips. So I assumed it had something, it was some kind of official promotion for, for the movie coming out on Blu-ray or something.
9: Yeah, I think it's one of the extras. There are a bunch of them, including the the interview that I talked about with Bowie and Rogue is part of, so they they included a commentary track, but it's not like a conventional commentary. It's basically interviews with different people hmm. cut together to match the running length of the film. And some of those are Bowie and rogue and presumably they're watching the film while they're talking about it, but it's not just like them for two hours.
8: It's a great, I love how the documentary's put together. I mean, sometimes it shows if you've just watched the movie and then you watch this documentary, it shows entire scenes. <laughs> I'm thinking, I just watched this. But I love how it layers scenes from the movies with scenes from Bowie's music career. And, and I don't know. It's, it's really well put together, I thought.
7: Yeah, I ended up buying this thing three times just for research for this. So I've got the Criterion, the Anchor Bay version that was uh, just on DVD, I think, because there is one extra there that I couldn't find otherwise. And then the Lionsgate release, which is like this thick box. It's a three disc, um, set, which is interesting. And they've got, I think they have more extras on there than they do on the Criterion, which just seems really strange to me.
9: I feel like Criterion has kind of given up a
7: little. I would not argue with that because especially when it comes to extras, it feels like they're not porting over pre-existing extras and they're just not making or buying or paying for new extras.
9: Kino has recently been releasing uh, Melville films on Blu-ray and I got to do some of the commentaries and I've had people writing me like, why don't Criterion do this? Like I'm not in charge of anything. I don't know, but it is a good point. Like, Why do I don't want to say less reputable, but why do sort of less prestigious companies seem to still be putting an effort into making extras? Whereas Criterion, I feel like in the last maybe three or so years, it's like they've stopped making any new extras. It's very frustrating and it feels like disrespectful to the film's.
7: Yeah, and just for preservation interests, you would think that they would want to have all the things on their disks.
9: Well, Criterion, if you're listening, you've been judged.
7: (laughs) (laughs) You've been judged lacking. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
5: Creation of the humanoids. Out of the atomic war came the perfect man. The humanoids. Man's own creation. Physically and mentally perfect. Created to serve their masters. Men. And women. But could man compete with this creation, the perfect man? You love that... that machine?
4: I love Pax. He's dedicated to keeping me happy. And I am happy. The robots
5: are machines. They must be made to look like machines. The perfect man, created by man, becomes man's worst enemy. Posse! The most provocative story ever filmed. The most unusual story ever filmed. You must see it to believe it. The creation of the humanoids. The perfect man.
7: That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the creation of the humanoids. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Skiz. Sam, what has been keeping you busy?
9: A lot of things. that I'm always terrible at this because usually what I'm working on hasn't been announced yet. So I always play this game of what can I say? Last month, my this book that I wrote on Fritz Lang's film M came out. Um, and I somewhat recently started a new podcast called The Evil Eye, which is all about goth movies, or (laughs) they're not really all goth movies, but I'm, we're making a case. So those are the two things off the top of my head.
7: What would you consider a goth movie?
9: One of the things that we're looking at are movies with like explicitly goth characters. So, you know, for that to count, it's mostly things made after nineteen eighty, so like we could def we're gonna definitely cover the hunger at some point. But we also have been covering some things with more sort of broadly literary gothic themes, like we just did a bunch of Vincent Price episodes and you know, it's our podcast, so we (laughs) we're being a little flexible with what that means. (laughs)
7: our podcast so step off. Yeah, we'll do what we want. <laughs> You're not the boss of us. And Skiz, I hear you have some big news to share, sir.
8: Yes, the film I guess I've talked about every time I've been on this show that I've worked on since 1999, Ice Pick to the Moon, the documentary about Fred Lane. Uh I'm sending it off to the DVD manufacturer any day now and uh we have a big DVD release party at the end of January in Birmingham, Alabama. Where uh not only is it the D V D release, it's also the album release party for Fred Lane's new album, which nobody saw coming, including me. Otherwise, I would have given the film a different name because it's the same name as the album, Ice Pick to the Moon. Not only that, but Fred Lane will be making his first publicized public appearance since nineteen seventy six. So we'll yeah, be cow. a little busy getting ready for that.
7: Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's exciting. And, uh,
8: and next time, I'll be able to talk about my new, my new film.
7: Well, and for folks who have been anxiously awaiting Ice Pick to the Moon, the movie, to come out, I will be releasing our audio commentary track so folks can play at home and uh, either listen to that as a podcast or actually buy the frickin' movie and listen to the commentary track on the DVD.
8: Yeah, there's a, there's a nice picture uh When we recorded that, there was a a young lady in the audience who asked a question. She also took a picture, and her picture is used on one of the DVD menus. And uh, so you can see what Mike and I both look like.
7: Oh, you poor people. (laughs) Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
2: My brain world Drop my cell phone Down below Ain't that just like me
5: I packed my bags last night, pre-flight.
2: Kind of place to raise a kid. In fact, it's cold as hell. And there's no one there to raise them. If you did. Five days a
5: week. Rocket
2: Man. A rocket, man. I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh, no no, no, I'm a rocket man. Rocket man burning out his fuse out here alone.
5: And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me around again to find i
0: I'm not the man they think I am. Oh, oh no, 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 I'm a rock man. Rocket
5: Man Burning out his fuse out Here alone And I think it's gonna be A long, long time And I think it's gonna be A long, long time And I think it's gonna be A long, long time And I think it's gonna be Be long, long time.
4: Bellies in inspires.
5: Bellies in space what you doing now, that, Mom? That's pretty freaky, Bowie. Ooh, Bowie! Is it cold out in space, Bowie? You can borrow my jumper if you like, Bowie. Does the cold of deep space make your nipples get pointed, Bowie? Do you use your pointy nipples as telescopic antenna to transmit data back to Earth? I bet you do, you freaky old
4: bastard,
5: you! Do you have one really funky sequence spacesuit, Bowie, or do you have several chit-changes? Do they smoke grass out in space, Bowie, or do they smoke Astrotone? Ooh! Receiving transmission from David Bowie's nipple antennae. Do you read me, Lieutenant Bowie? I said, do you read me, Lieutenant Bowie? <laughs>
4: Do you hear me out there, man? This is Bowie back to Bowie. I read your love, clear
2: my... Who you man? Your signal will come
4: over, you screen.
5: Coming out with the Magirenault soon, and I think it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, okay, Boeing, what was that sound? I don't know, why i
4: have to turn my ship around. Ooh, so crazy to
5: Yeah, I'm picking it up on my ST screen. Can you see the stratosphere? Quite the long time from in space, Space on Thump
4: Cash. <laughs>